2: welcome to the humanist report podcast my name is mike figueredo and this is the 189th edition of the program today is friday april 19th and before we get into the show i want to take some time to thank all of our newest patreon paypal and youtube members all of which signed up either just this last week to support us for the very first time or increased their monthly pledge and that includes ann hiller eric Haller, gray wind jacob hackle jerry rush joseph Teray, justin white kathleen lowey linda corey mark loomis naeen saiz Philip Pennington, Ramona E. Lawson, Roger Husek, Ross Mullins, and Roy Sutherland. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So this week on the Humanist Report podcast, Trump incites hatred against Ilhan Omar. Nancy Pelosi gets a primary challenger. Bernie Sanders stands up to the Democratic Party establishment. Tommy Loren says stupid stuff again. Bernie Sanders dominated at his Fox News town hall. He also made the case for Medicare for All. CNN thinks they finally got Bernie Sanders. A Fox News host face plants in an effort to attack Bernie's Medicare for All proposal. Trump greenlights more genocide in Yemen. Establishment Democrats plot against Bernie Sanders behind closed doors. Nira Tandon gets exposed by her own mother. judge proposes man- Mandatory national service. And finally, we closed out the week with a look at the full Mueller report, Fox News' interview with Tulsi Gabbard, and we'll speak to 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy the show. I want to take some time to talk about Ilhan Omar because she is dealing with something that no other member of Congress has to deal with. She is constantly bombarded with hatred and attacks and death threats and abuse all because of her identity because she's a muslim woman and she's also criticized whenever she says basically anything i mean she dealt with universal condemnation when she spoke out against APAC, which her criticism was valid she simply asked why are we not allowed to question the monetary influence that aipac has on members of congress when we do the same thing for other interest groups the nra for example so that led to her being condemned basically by everyone it led to donald trump literally calling on her to resign but even if she doesn't say anything she still has to put up with abuse and discrimination just because she's a muslim woman For example, this poster was found at a public event that was sponsored by the West Virginian Republican Party. It was found at the state capitol, where it literally links her to 9-11. Because she's a Muslim and because she was elected to Congress, it demonstrates that Americans forgot about the importance of 9-11. So she has to deal with so much bigotry, so much bullshit, and on top of that, she's spoken out about the uh, death threats that she received. In her own district, somebody wrote, assassinate Ilhan Omar in the gas station, uh, in the bathroom of one of the gas stations in her district. So she is facing this unique threat of constant abuse and harassment that nobody else has to deal with in Congress, and it's because she's a Muslim. Now, at a recent event that took place about a month ago, she spoke about why we all need to forcefully combat the hatred and misinformation and generalizations that are harmful against Muslim Americans. And this is what she had to say.
3: Far too long we have lived with the discomfort of being a second-class citizen. And frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. <laughs> CARE was founded after 9-11. Because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. So you can't just say that today someone is looking at me strange that I am going to try to make myself look pleasant. You have to say this person is looking at me strange. I am not comfortable with it. I am going to go talk to them and ask them why. Because that is the right you have.
2: So she makes an incredibly important point there, and I want to reiterate what she's saying there. Because of the actions of some people who she does not identify with, that has led to generalizations that are harmful against Muslim Americans. Because of what happened on 9-11, many people now assume that all Muslims are like those people. So it's an important point, and what she's saying is valid. We need to stand up against the hatred against the bigotry that is being perpetrated against muslim americans now but here's how dan crenshaw congressman from texas decided to interpret that first of all he retweeted someone who took her out of context and claimed that she intentionally minimized 9-11 and she did so to justify the creation of a quote terrorist organization which he claims care is And then Dan Crenshaw responded by saying, first member of Congress to ever describe terrorists who killed thousands of Americans on 9-11 as some people who did something unbelievable. Actually, what's unbelievable is that a sitting member of Congress retweeted someone who took one of his colleagues out of context and claimed that CARE is a terrorist organization. That is what I find unbelievable. Because if you extrapolate further, then the implication is that since CARE is supposedly a terrorist organization and since she supports said Quote, terrorist organization, then she must have condoned the attacks on 9 11, which is why she, quote, minimized it, which is why people accuse us of forgetting about the importance of 9 11 since she was elected. I mean, do you see why posters like this are put up? It's because of ignorant statements. Like this, which proves the point that she made in her original speech. All Muslims are being generalized because of 9-11. And she's saying we need to stop generalizing. We need to combat this fear-mongering and hatred of Muslims. And what do they do? They prove her point. Unbelievable. And it doesn't matter what she says or does. This is not going to stop. They're going to continue doing this and it's getting worse because guess what President Donald Trump decided to do? He tweeted out a video with the words, we will never forget, that played her out of context comments with painful imagery of planes flying to the Twin Towers, and then he actually had that tweet pinned for days. He finally unpinned it as of today, which is Monday, the time I record this video, But he had it pinned for days. Now, let's call this what it is. This is a direct incitement of hatred. And for someone who already faces constant death threats and harassment and discrimination, he is exacerbating that problem. This will lead to her getting even more harassment and more death threats. That's what the sitting president just did that is what i find unbelievable and what's ironic to me is that for someone who's supposedly outraged that she minimized 9-11 there's nobody in the country who minimized 9-11 more so than donald trump who literally was on tape bragging on 9-11 about how since the twin towers fell his building was now the largest in or the tallest in manhattan
4: you have one of the landmark buildings down in the financial district 40 wall street uh did you have any damage or did you know what what's happened down there
5: well it was an amazing phone call i made 40 wall street actually was the second tallest building in downtown manhattan and, and it was actually before the world trade center was the tallest and then when they built the world trade center it became known as the second tallest and now it's the tallest and i just spoke to my people and they said it's the most unbelievable site
2: so for someone who cares about the supposed minimization of 9/11, It doesn't get any worse than that. So what he did was he took a political opponent out of context for purposes of political expediency because he wanted to smear them. What's especially grotesque about this smear is that unlike most smears, this opens the door to harassment and threats. It incites hatred. But Donald Trump doesn't care about that. I'm sure he uh, is hoping that that's what's going to happen. And Dan Crenshaw, who arguably started this, quote, scandal, I think he needs to explain why he told a firefighter who survived 9-11 why he was, quote, too busy to talk about victim benefits. I mean, that doesn't just minimize 9-11, but you told a literal hero that you were too busy to talk about victim benefits. If that doesn't minimize 9-11, then I don't know what does. So, these are all hypocrites who are lobbying bad faith attacks at Ilhan Omar for purposes of political expediency, and they don't care at all that this endangers her life, that it directly incites hatred against her. And what happened was exactly what we all predicted would happen. She received countless death threats. She put out a statement saying, since the president's tweet Friday evening, I have experienced an increase in direct threats on my life, many directly referencing or replying to the president's video. We are all Americans. This is endangering lives. It has to stop, but it's not going to stop. Because what Donald Trump does, what is a political tactic for him, is to drum up fear about the other and just because she's a Muslim woman who wears a hijab, this allows Donald Trump to imply that individuals who are unlike you, individuals who we deem the other, they've infiltrated America, and this is what they're doing. It's downright morally reprehensible. And for a sitting president to openly incite hatred against a sitting member of Congress, there's something really disgusting about this. Imagine if Obama tweeted out something like this. This is a really, really um, toxic political atmosphere, and I don't blame people for tuning out of politics because this is the type of bullshit that you have to deal with. And if you are a member of a marginalized community, this is the type of discrimination you have to put up with. Where the president is openly trying to fearmonger about you and claim that just because of your identity, you want to minimize the suffering that was caused on 9-11. Understand this. There were Muslims in the Twin Towers that were the victims of the terrorist attack on 9-11. You know this, right? Muslim Americans in the Twin Towers died. So they were also the victims. Americans of all colors and orientations and ethnic backgrounds were the victims. So, to basically weaponize 9-11 and exploit that tragedy to attack your political opponents, that is morally fucking reprehensible. And Donald Trump is just a morally bankrupt joke of a human being. I don't know how he has support, but if you look at the comments, sadly... They all supported him. If you go to his Instagram, where he also posted this, they all supported what he's doing. Uh, They supported him inciting hatred against a sitting member of Congress who already receives death threats regularly. It's disgusting. I feel like I i am never going to stop bringing this up. I'm never going to stop bringing up how horrible Nancy Pelosi is as a leader. And the reason why I am going to continuously do this is because I think we need to remind members of the Democratic Party elite, their loyalists, namely people like Whoopi Goldberg, people like Soledad O'Brien, who forcefully condemned progressives that didn't want her to become speaker again. They called us ageist, they called us sexist, but time and again she has proven that she is not qualified to be a leader because she doesn't stand up for the party, she doesn't stand up for her caucus, and all she's doing is the bidding of the Democratic Party's donors. The point of a political party is to represent its base, but all she's doing is representing the party's donors that defeats the whole purpose of a political party because the point of a party is you join together with other like-minded individuals to pursue political goals but all she's doing is protecting the corporate status quo and she showed how useless she is again by issuing this milquetoast statement about ilhan omar after donald trump incited hatred against her And she received death threats. Here's what she said about that. The memory of 9-11 is sacred ground, and any discussion of it must be done with reverence. The president shouldn't use painful images of 9-11 for a political attack. As we visit our troops in Stuttgart to thank them and be briefed by them, we honor our first responsibility as leaders to protect and defend the American people. It is wrong for the president, as commander-in-chief, to fan the flames to make anyone less safe. So first of all, she didn't even bother to include Ilhan Omar's name there. Second of all, she is kind of tacitly legitimizing Donald Trump and Dan Crenshaw's bad faith attack against Ilhan Omar. Which is not surprising because she also jumped on the bandwagon when Republicans and other bad faith actors were smearing her as an anti-Semite because she dared to call out the influence that APAC has. Which you all just proved to right a couple of weeks ago when you spoke at APEC, and you and other members of Democratic Party leadership took shots at the newly elected members of Congress who are speaking out against APEC. So, I mean, this response, or really this non-response from Nancy Pelosi, it's not too surprising, but that doesn't mean it's any less disgusting, and I think that Rashida Tlaib put it best. She said, They put us in photos when they want to show our party is diverse. However, when we ask to be at the table or speak up about issues that impact who we are, what we fight for, and why we ran in the first place, we are ignored. To truly honor our diversity is to never silence us. And that's exactly it. And another thing she did that proved that she shouldn't be leading the left-wing party is after meeting with Jeremy Corbyn, she met with other Labour MPs in Britain about, quote, why they left the Labour Party and the importance of standing unequivocally against anti-Semitism wherever it is found. So to give you some more context, what we saw happen to Ilhan Omar is the exact same thing that Labour MPs did and really conservative MPs did Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Because basically he chose to stand up for Palestinian rights, he was smeared as an anti-Semite. And now she is co-signing onto that attack. Because understand, the hallmark of Western neoliberalism is basically to weaponize identity politics to use basically against the left. Because the left in the UK, the left in America, we're making policy-based substantive critiques of neoliberal centrists and they don't like it. So the way that they make themselves seem more liberal is by lobbying these bad faith identity-based attacks against us when obviously, as Rashida Tlaib points out, it's to hide their own shortcomings. And I wanna play some audio from a recent interview she did with CBS News. I can't actually play the video footage because it's basically going to guarantee that I get a copyright claim on it. But um, I wanna play the audio. It's really short, it's like 56 seconds because she makes it very clear where she stands. Uh, She doesn't like progressives and she's dismissing the influence that they have even if they're having a pretty significant influence on American dialogue at large.
6: So you are contending with a group in Congress. Over here on the left flank are these self-described socialists. On the right, these moderates. And you yourself said that you're the only one who can unify everybody. And the question is, can you? By and large, uh, whatever orientation they came to Congress with, they know that we have to hold the center, that we have to go down the mainstream. They know that? they do but it doesn't look like that it looks as if it you're, it's fractured she likes to minimize the conflicts within her caucus between the moderates and the progressives you have these wings aoc and her group on one side no, it's like five people
3: no it's
6: the progressive group it's
2: more
3: than well, the Progressive.
6: Five. i'm a progressive yeah
2: that's absurd what she's saying is incredible. It's incredible. She's so full of shit. This is what she said. Progressives, quote, know that we have to hold the center, that we have to go down the mainstream. Hey, Nancy, have you looked at a single poll within the last two years? Progressives are the mainstream. Medicare for all, a federal jobs guarantee, legalizing marijuana, Green New Deal. These are all policy positions that are overwhelmingly popular that are supporting that are supported by the american people so progressives are the mainstream you're not doing anything that is mainstream all you're doing is you're protecting the status quo which is not the mainstream part of the reason why donald trump got elected is because the establishment has failed americans part of the reason why jair bolsonaro got elected in brazil is because the status quo failed brazilian so we're seeing the status quo fail in country after country the establishment lose legitimacy and yet centrists like nancy pelosi are going to claim that they're the mainstream you're not the mainstream now when she was questioned about her minimization of the intra-party conflict that's going on currently between progressives and centrists she says this about progressives that's like five people that's like five people, so we shouldn't have to listen to them. She also says, "Oh, but I'm a progressive. Are you now? So it's like five people, but you're part of the five people. Do you understand what you're even saying? All that she says at this point is nonsense. It's incoherent, it's borderline gibberish. and all she espouses our platitudes. Nancy Pelosi is so full of shit, so I really hope that people like Whoopi Goldberg and Soledad O'Brien pay close attention and understand that we pushed back when they called us sexist and ageist for opposing her bid for the speakership because this is why we don't like Nancy Pelosi. It's because she is doing the bidding of corporate America shamelessly so. But the good news is that we can actually oppose nancy pelosi she already is the speaker but we can oppose her in a meaningful way because she has a primary challenger named shaheed batar who is actually a true progressive. Not only does he support Medicare for All and pledges to sign on to Jayapal's Medicare for All bill, but he also wants to cut military spending and close our overseas military bases. So if you want to support him, if you want to give progressives a chance to finally oust Nancy Pelosi, this is how you do it. You can go to shaheedforchange.us and you can sign up to volunteer, you can support him. And understand that successfully primarying a member of the Democratic Party's leadership is going to be very difficult. It may seem as if it's easy since AOC just did it and she successfully ousted a member of Democratic Party leadership, but it is going to be incredibly difficult. But as we all know, Michaela Wilkes is primarying Steny Hoyer. And now, Shahid Batar is primarying Nancy Pelosi. It's going to be tough. So, if you truly want to get Nancy Pelosi out and get someone who's progressive in and give us the opportunity to get someone who is going to be speaker, who's actually going to represent progressives, then you need to support Shahid Batar. Because Nancy Pelosi is not going to leave willingly. She's going to cling to power for dear life and she will never let go unless you force her from power. So that's why you need to support Shahid Batar and understand that this is why we are against Nancy Pelosi. It has nothing to do with ageism. It has nothing to do with sexism. We oppose her for policy-based Reasons And also really for political reasons, it's because she is unwilling to come to the defense of her own caucus as Ilhan Omar is receiving death threats because of Donald Trump inciting hatred against her. What does she do? She releases this milquetoast response, which kind of tacitly legitimizes what Donald Trump was saying, his bad faith smear against her. So Nancy Pelosi is full of shit. She is horrible and we should all be working together to oust her from power so i'm not sure how many people know this but think progress is a news organization that is essentially the media arm of the so-called center for american progress which is a neoliberal pro corporate billionaire funded think tank that's run by neera tanden who hates bernie sanders she hates progressives and she is fighting with everything she possibly has to um, protect the status quo. Now, I'm not going to say that Think Progress is a horrible media outlet because they've done some genuinely objective pieces of journalism that I've shared that I recommended people read because I thought that you know they they do good work from time to time. It's the same thing like Media Matters. They're run by David Brock, but every once in a while they'll do really good compilation videos of Fox News. So, I'm not going to dismiss the totality of the organization, but with that being said, in the event the so-called Center for American Progress needs think progress to act as an attack dog for them, They will do that. And they recently just did that. They released a series of political hatchet jobs at the behest of the so-called Center for American Progress in an effort to attack and delegitimize Bernie Sanders. So just last week, they put out this hit piece that they tried to pass off as, quote, analysis where they basically just attack Bernie Sanders for being a millionaire, and they additionally released a video where they played all of the different times Bernie Sanders talked about millionaires and billionaires, but they tried to frame him as being a hypocrite because as he denounces the millionaire and billionaire class, his wealth was substantially increasing simultaneously due to the sales of his best-selling book. Now, to be clear here, Bernie Sanders never took a vow of poverty, nor did he say that wealth was intrinsically bad. But when he talks about the millionaire and billionaire class you have to be clear, he's talking about their greed. So in the event Bernie Sanders suddenly became a millionaire and then tried to dodge his taxes, he stored his earnings in the Cayman Islands, and then started enacting legislation that would cut his own taxes, then I think it would be reasonable for us to deduce that he's hypocritical. But just the mere fact that he's now a millionaire does not make him inherently hypocritical. That's absurd. He always is very specific in calling out the greed of the millionaire and billionaire class. And there's countless videos of him doing this, but think Progress wasn't actually trying to be honest and put out an objective piece of journalism that demonstrates how Bernie Sanders is now a hypocrite. All they were trying to do is act as the attack dog for the Center for American Progress, again, run by Neera Tanden, who despises Bernie Sanders, and they just simply wanted to find whatever issue they could lob at Bernie Sanders. Because, look, we've seen this for multiple years now. Whatever scandal scandal they can throw at Bernie Sanders, uh, they throw at him because they want something to stick. And nothing's really stuck because there's no scandals of Bernie Sanders. You can comb through decades' worth of footage, and he's being consistent. He's talking about how... Uh, The greed of the millionaire class is ruining the economy. He talks about wealth and income inequality. So there's nothing that's sticking because there's no real scandals. But with that being said, the media think progress, Center for American Progress. They're trying to manufacture some type of scandal in order to delegitimize Bernie Sanders because, again, he poses a threat to what they're trying to protect the status quo. Now, what's ironic is that Nira Tandon, the head of the Center for American Progress, she constantly denounces attacks on Democrats. So, if you recall, back in December, David Sirota, before he was working for Bernie Sanders, he published an article about Beto O'Rourke and basically just outlined how conservative his record was and Neera Tanden basically had a conniption fit. She literally suggested that it's unacceptable for any Democrat to be attacked, and she even called it "quote seriously dangerous," implying any attack on a Democrat would help Trump. And she even called on Sanders to repudiate this "quote attack," which was actually just Beto O'Rourke's own record. But now that Think Progress is attacking Bernie Sanders after she previously denounced. Attacks on Beto O'Rourke and attacks on any Democrat because it helps Donald Trump. Well, now what does she have to say? Uh, uh, a, uh, 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 if anyone's a hypocrite, it's not Bernie Sanders. It's Nira Tandon because how are you going to denounce attacks on any Democrats and then you're going to allow <laughs> the media organization of Think Progress uh, of the Center for American Progress? To attack bernie sanders i mean you've got to understand what's happening here the democratic party establishment and democratic party elites they have a set of standards that they apply to progressives that they don't follow themselves and that's what we're seeing here and thankfully bernie sanders saw it and he finally decided to call it out so he actually penned a letter to them that the new york times picked up and he questioned why, if it's totally unacceptable for anyone to attack any Democrat, then why is the Center for American Progress's media arm publishing right wing attacks on Democrats, not just Democrats like Bernie Sanders, but Democrats such as Elizabeth Warren, Democrats such as Cory Booker? And also, why are they publishing ad hominem attacks? on Bernie Sanders. So he writes, Center for American Progress leader Neera Tandon repeatedly calls for unity while simultaneously maligning my staff and supporters and belittling progressive ideas. I worry that the corporate money CAP is receiving is inordinately and inappropriately influencing the role it is playing in the progressive movement. I and other Democratic candidates are running campaigns based on principles and ideas and not engaging in mudslinging or personal attacks on each other. Meanwhile, the Center for American Progress is using its resources to smear Senator Booker, Senator Warren, and myself, among others. This is hardly the way to build unity or to win the general election. I will be informing my grassroots supporters of the foregoing concerns that I have about the role CAP is playing. Should your actions evolve in the coming months, I am happy to reconsider what kind of partnership we can have. This counterproductive negative campaigning needs to stop. The Democratic primary must be a campaign of ideas, not of bad faith smears. Please help play a constructive role in the effort to defeat Donald Trump. Now, I think that this is a brilliant move by Bernie Sanders because he's basically using their own words against them. How can they say that any and all attacks are seriously dangerous, but yet do it themselves constantly? It's because Neera Tandon is an opportunistic Democratic Party establishment crony she's just doing their bidding and she doesn't really care about any democrat being attacked because she's all in favor of attacks on bernie sanders and she's signed on to basically every single smear that the establishment has thrown at bernie sanders and she's someone who probably still hates Bernie Sanders because she was most likely hoping to get a cushy job in Hillary Clinton's administration. But since Hillary Clinton lost, well, she's trying to use that as evidence that Bernie Sanders somehow must have hurt Hillary Clinton in the general election because he was so dirty against Hillary in 2016, which is just nonsense. But here's what Nera Tandon is. She is a bully. She is everything that she accuses everyone else of being. And it's not just that she's a bully towards progressives and Bernie Sanders, she's a bully towards her own staff, because there was a story that came out in 2018 about how she literally outed the name of an anonymous staffer from the Center for American Progress who accused someone else of Harassment. Now the reason why you want to make sure that staffers identities are protected is because one you want to make sure that they're protected from harassment or blowback and two you want to make sure that you don't discourage others who are the victims of harassment at your organization from speaking out. But she knows this in a professional environment. You can't not know this and become the president and CEO of an organization. But she's a bully. And she purposefully outed that staffer. Otherwise, I think she's just so incompetent that she needs to resign. But here's what I think a lot of us were thinking. How is Nira Tandon going to respond? Because what he did here was expose her blatant hypocrisy. So how is she gonna respond? Well, I think that my initial prediction was that she was just not going to say anything. However, Now she's forced to act because an individual who matters the most actually acknowledged Bernie Sanders' letter and surprisingly took Bernie Sanders' side, so I'm talking about one of the Democratic Party and CAP's billionaire donors, Tom Stayer, who states, Voters deserve a fair and unbiased primary election, and I will use my voice on the Center for American Progress Board of Directors to discourage any such attacks on any candidate seeking the Democratic nomination in the future. Now, can you guess what happened after a billionaire came out and denounced the Center for American Progress? then she responded like that and she put out her own statement saying that think progress has editorial independence although the video that they put out in her view was overly harsh this is what we're going to have to deal with for um the next couple of years we're going to have to deal with these types of bad faith smears against bernie sanders and i'm not saying that bernie sanders is above criticism I've been critical of Bernie Sanders. I've stated that I think he needs to do better when it comes to reparations. I've stated that he needs to speak out on behalf of Julian Assange. I've stated that he needs to do better with regard to Israel-Palestine. So there are good faith criticisms from the left of Bernie Sanders that you can lob against him. But what I am saying is that there's a lot of bad faith arguments that are trying to do anything to delegitimize Bernie Sanders. And the one thing they think they're going to be able to get his own base to flip on him over is this issue. Oh, well, if you hate millionaires, then why do you support Bernie? Because he's a millionaire now. We support Bernie because he's going after other millionaires. He wants to tax them as well as himself. And that's what we care about. It's the greed of the millionaires, not their existence. Now, billionaires is something else. I think that every single billionaire is, in fact, a policy failure. But there's a difference between somebody who's a millionaire and a billionaire. And if you don't acknowledge that, then I don't know what to say. But regardless, this is an argument that they're using against Bernie Sanders to frame him as a hypocrite. That's just not going to stick. But they're trying to make it stick. And I'm glad that he decided to speak out against what they're doing because it's just, it's wrong. And if anybody should stop attacking Democrats, don't you think it's a Democratic Party think tank that should stop attacking other Democrats because you can say he's not a Democrat because he's been an independent for most of his career, but he's more Democratic than Joe Manchin, who literally endorsed a Republican, Susan Collins. So regardless, I mean, they're going to keep doing this, and once they move on from the millionaire issue, when they realize that it's not going to stick, they're going to find something else. But I like that Bernie Sanders essentially issued a warning to them, play nice or my grassroots supporters are going to know what you're doing and what your agenda really is. So I'm glad Bernie Sanders is fighting fire with fire because if you just try to ignore these attacks and you don't respond, then you're allowing them them to monopolize the narrative, which is something you never want to happen in the midst of a campaign. So good on Bernie for speaking out and condemning this here. So I want to talk about a tweet recently put out by Timmy Loren, Tommy Loren, excuse me, who I believe Kyle Kolinsky, maybe it's him, calls Conservative Barbie. <laughs> and I'm going to steal that because I think that that is perfect. Maybe it's somebody else who calls her that. But either way, Conservative Barbie put out a tweet about the left that is so insane that I felt compelled to talk about it because I honestly don't know if she believes her own bullshit at this point it's that bizarre and this really speaks to an issue that i'm having lately with regard to conservatism and conservatives more specifically saying them things that are so bizarre that i don't know if they're just dumb or if they're being intentionally disingenuous so as you all know there was the issue related to ilhan omar where we defended her the left collectively came out and defended her because Donald Trump put out a tweet that endangered her life. It incited hatred against her. This is what she had to say about the left's defense of Ilhan Omar. The left stands up for Ilhan Omar and says, we must be tolerant of Sharia law. Oppression, (laughs) stoning of gays, yet mercilessly attacks Vice President Mike Pence for not believing in same-sex marriage. Explain your logic. Yeah, I'm going to need you to explain your logic there, Thomas, because that makes no sense. Why do you automatically assume that because we're defending Ilhan Omar that we support Sharia? Or not only that, she says that we're saying that we must tolerate Sharia. Who's saying that? Can you name a single example of someone on the left saying that we must tolerate Sharia? And furthermore, how is that applicable to someone like Ilhan Omar, who is progressive? She's pro-LGBTQ rights. So you're saying that because we're defending Ilhan Omar, that automatically means that we support Sharia? So that I think that that really speaks to how ignorant she is. Anyone who's Muslim, she is just assuming that they, by default, want to impose sharia law on the united states and she says that meanwhile while her own side her own party is trying to impose their own version of sharia law christian sharia what did donald trump do he gutted the johnson amendment which is meant to protect that barrier that exists between church and state. But what he did is he gutted that amendment that prohibits churches from getting involved in politics, so they no longer have to worry about losing their tax-exempt status if they become political. The left is against that. We're the ones who are more egalitarian. We are the ones who oppose theocracy. Meanwhile, it's your party who is advocating for religious statues, such as the Ten Commandments, to be placed on public property. You're the ones who are saying that we should bring back prayer in schools. And Trump is saying that we should allow religious individuals to teach Bible classes in public schools. You guys are the ones who are actively trying to impose your religious views on us, not just socially, but politically, and yet you have the audacity to accuse the left of wanting to um, impose Sharia law? Are you fucking kidding me? How moronic do you have to be to believe something like this? Like, I, I'm honestly, I'm questioning if she genuinely believes that. I hope that she's just being disingenuous because if she's that ignorant, if she honestly believes that the left supports Sharia law, then it's bizarre. It's just, I, I don't know how she would come to that conclusion what evidence allows you to deduce that the left supports sharia law tommy what evidence i mean and and furthermore to talk about sharia law saudi arabia they are wahhabist sharia law theocracy and yet the president who you support supports them they just killed a journalist they killed a washington post journalist and the president who you support wouldn't even commit to stopping the weapons deal that we have with them. So if anybody supports theocracy, it's conservatives because they're trying to impose their own version, sharia light, the Christian version, on Americans. And meanwhile, they're propping up theocratic regimes across the world. What are you talking about? This really just shows that the right has become extreme. Their rhetoric is off the spectrum. Because if you look to the UK... As crazy as conservatives are there, because conservatism is, I think, inherently problematic, but you don't hear Theresa May saying things that are this crazy. And it's not like Tommy Lahren doesn't represent the actual Republican Party, because you could see Louis Gohmert saying things just as equally insane. He said that Obama wanted to bring back the Ottoman Empire or something along those lines. I mean, the things that conservatives say, you would think that it would permanently discredit them and delegitimize them, but they're incredibly popular if you look on youtube they are dominating youtube currently and they say things like this but yet they're still dominant it shows that people in america have no common sense we no longer have common sense if that what tommy Loren said is supposedly intellectual as if she's making some type of astute observation she's literally saying that because we're defending ilhan omar that we support sharia Sharila, that we're saying you must tolerate Sharia law. That's what she said. I mean, what? It's, it's so insane. Who believes this? Who believes this? No, actually, I don't support Sharia law. I don't support any religious law. I don't support any religions because I'm an atheist. But with that being said, I can acknowledge that as a member of a marginalized community, as someone who represents a religious minority in Congress, I am worried that misinformation and generalizations about Muslims will make their freedom to practice their religion be diminished. And I don't want someone like Ilhan Omar to be attacked because of what she believes. Because even if me and her have different views with regard to religion and spirituality, it doesn't matter. I still support her right to practice whatever religion she wants and i support your right tommy to practice whatever religion you want you can believe whatever you want if you want to believe in unicorns if you want to believe in the flying spaghetti monster if you want to worship the devil i don't care all that i'm saying is don't impose your religion on me if i choose not to practice any religion but they take it a step further they actually do want to impose their religion And yet they claim that because we're standing up for someone's religious freedom, someone who represents a minority, a religious minority, that no, 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 we're wanting to impose religion on people. I mean, you've got to be delusional to think something like this. And again, I don't know. I don't know if she really believes this, but it's getting more difficult to distinguish between the conservatives who are just disingenuous or ones that are actually dumb and batshit fucking crazy like she is. And I i don't know, there's been times where she has demonstrated that she has the capacity to be reasonable, at least to, um, you know, a small degree. But to say something like this, to believe that about your opponents, you have to be delusional and really to vocalize it, to Put that on Twitter so the world can see it. You have to be crazy. There's no equivalence between Ilhan Omar and Mike Pence. They both have religious views that I disagree with. The difference is I support both of their abilities to practice their religion. However, Ilhan Omar is not trying to impose her religion on anyone, whereas Mike Pence is. He literally signed a bill into law. That allows people business owners to discriminate against members of the lgbtq community and he did this under the guise of religious freedom but they claim that that's what the left is doing no that's called projection because that's what you want to do so i had to talk about this tweet because i mean we're at a stage in american politics that it's borderline parody. we've reached idiocracy officially to see things like this I have nothing else to say about this, it's just she's delusional, she genuinely believes that. So for the three of you in this country who don't know, Bernie Sanders went on Fox News for a town hall and he absolutely dominated. And let me tell you this, I've seen a lot of town halls as a political commentator who feels obligated to watch each and every single one of them, and this is my favorite thus far. It's certainly my favorite in recent memory, but it may literally be my favorite town hall of all time because not only did it contain the policy substance, but it was also thoroughly enjoyable just from an entertainment standpoint because Bernie Sanders walked in with a flamethrower and he was not playing games because he's equipped with the knowledge that a lot of other candidates i think lack and he knew whenever a fox news host was trying to frame a question to serve donald trump or the interests of the republican party and he swatted that down no questions asked and to kind of give you just a little bit of a glimpse we'll get into some specifics but to give you a snapshot of how well this event played out for bernie sanders (laughs) enjoy this clip which is probably my favorite
4: Uh, i want to ask the audience a question, if you could raise your hand here, a show of hands of how many people get their insurance from work, private insurance, right now? How many get it from private insurance? Okay, now of those, how many are willing to transition to what the senator says, a government-run system?
2: That was glorious. (laughs) It's amazing to see a Fox News audience be so receptive to Bernie Sanders' message, It shows that he really is the most viable candidate. He can beat Donald Trump. Nobody's a guarantee, but if anybody is going to be able to pull off a victory in 2020, it's Bernie Sanders. It was evident that they were receptive to every single thing that Bernie Sanders was saying, and they even didn't like some of the things that the Fox News hosts were saying because it was very clear that they were wording certain questions in a very biased way way. Now, to give you an example of that, look at this question on abortion and how it was framed.
7: With regard to abortion, do you believe that a woman should be able to terminate a pregnancy up until the moment of birth?
1: Look, I think that that happens very, very rarely, and I think this is being made into a political issue. Okay.
2: So that's the type of bias that we expected from Fox News, and it's exactly what we got. Because think about the way that that Fox News host is trying to prime viewers to think about the way Democrats view the issue of abortion. She's literally trying to pretend as if Democrats are advocating for late term abortions willy nilly, that if you are due to give birth you're nine months pregnant then tomorrow you should be free to just you know terminate that pregnancy that's not what anyone is advocating for the only reason why democrats support the idea of late-term abortions is if there is this circumstance where the mother and the baby's lives are at risk then they should be able to determine to have the baby or not have the baby if it jeopardizes the life of the mother. So, for example, if you have to choose between the mother or the baby, these are very rare circumstances, but in the event that comes up, the government shouldn't be the one to decide that. It should be the doctor who decides with their patient what's right for them. But they try to portray this as some commonly occurring phenomenon that is happening all the time that people are just willfully choosing to get late-term abortions and putting no thought into it of course that's not happening so that's just a taste of the bias however don't feel too bad for Bernie Sanders here because he also took some some shots at them which I thoroughly enjoyed here's an example of that
6: how can you challenge the idea that socialism is bad in the minds
1: of the public might have asked them not me
2: (laughs) (laughs) so bernie sanders was incredibly charming and he took shots not just at fox news not just at the hosts to their face but he took shots at donald trump repeatedly and what's going to make the situation even that much more sweeter Is the fact that donald trump watched it so for example he called donald trump a pathological liar and then he said this about donald trump trump
1: cannot even tell the truth even as to where his father was born it's really that crazy his father was born in new york he claims he was born in germany but if you can't even tell the truth about where your father was born it's hard to believe anything that he says
2: so keep in mind he's shitting on donald trump on the home of donald trump the network that is the propaganda arm of the republican party and donald trump saw it all and we know that he watched because he tweeted about it he says so weird to watch crazy bernie on fox news not surprisingly brett bayer and the quote audience was so smiley and nice very strange and now we have donna brazil That is the sound of someone who is absolutely terrified. And Donald Trump should be scared. Because if you see that your potential opponent in 2020 has a message that resonates with your people, with your own crowd, then of course that's cause for concern. So Donald Trump is right to be afraid and I hope that he's shaking in his boots because Bernie Sanders, if anybody is going to be able to defeat Donald Trump nobody's a guarantee but if anybody can bernie proved i think beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the most viable candidate now i don't want to pretend as if bernie sanders performance was flawless but overall i think it's safe to say that he dominated now there's a couple of moments that i think there's room for improvement for example somebody had posed the question to him about his progressive movement and whether or not this is the left-wing equivalent of the tea party movement No, i think that bernie sanders he answered the question adequately he said look we're listening to people and that's what separates us from the tea party but i think that what he should have done is explain how our movement is actually a populist movement whereas the tea party movement even if it started off as a grassroots right-wing movement it was quickly co-opted by right-wing millionaires so that isn't actually a real movement we are an authentically populist movement that is trying to implement the will of the American people, what they want socially, economically, and racially. We're trying to do their bidding. That's why we're not like the Tea Party. So, I think that he could have answered that better, but I still don't think he answered poorly. There was another instance where he kind of scoffed at a question about taxes, which we're going to get into, where he was asked if he'd pay the 52% rate that he's proposing now, and we'll talk about why that's a silly idea, but he kind of just scoffed at it, and I think that he opened himself up to criticism, and in a different segment, we're going to talk about how he was, in fact, criticized because of his response. So, it wasn't perfect, but by and large, Bernie Sanders did overwhelmingly phenomenal. His performance here was so good that I think that this may have single-handedly been enough to contribute to a potential bump in the polls, hopefully in early primary states. So I absolutely love the town hall. But now that we've got the more general stuff out of the way, we're going to get into a, a couple of specific clips here. Now, let me just say this. I'm going to be playing a lot of clips. So if you haven't seen the town hall, I would highly encourage you to watch it in its entirety. I'll link to it down below. But overall, it was thoroughly entertaining and trying to clip out portions that I wanted to share was incredibly difficult because by the time I finished watching it, I kid you not, I had 25 minutes worth of clips. So obviously, <laughs> I had to cut that because at that point, this segment becomes useless because you might as well just watch the entire um, town hall. <laughs> so if, if I come up with an analysis that's longer than the town hall, then I've failed to do my job. But with that being said, let's get into taxes because Fox News paid a lot of time to him releasing his tax returns that showed that he's a millionaire. And I think Bernie Sanders did a sufficient job at explaining why it's not hypocritical to be a millionaire and simultaneously advocate for the rich to pay their fair share in taxes.
1: Now, you raise the issue, I am a millionaire. Well, actually, this year we had $560,000 in income. And that's a lot of money. And that money, in my case, my wife's case, it came from a book that I wrote a pretty good book. You might want to read it. It's a bestseller. sold all over the world, and we made money. So if anyone thinks that I should apologize for writing a bestselling book, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it. And in my view, people, whether it's me, you, probably make a lot more money than I do. But whether it's me or you or anybody else, I think wealthy people and large corporations that are making billions of profits should start paying their fair share of taxes. But Senator...
2: So I think that that was a good answer. He explained himself well and basically he got a lot of money by writing a best-selling book. Nobody's going to be surprised by that. The good thing about the way that Bernie Sanders acquired his wealth is that he didn't exploit workers. He didn't do it by dodging taxes. He did it honestly. He earned his money honestly, and what's most important is that he's not changing his position. He's not suddenly saying, you know what, maybe we need to lay off millionaires. No, he's saying we need to tax millionaires, make them pay their fair share, and that's that. My position hasn't changed because I am now part of the 1%. I've been saying the same thing throughout the entirety of my life, and that's not going to change because I'm now a millionaire. So, with that being said, Brett Baier posed the question, well, if you're a millionaire and you support a 52% marginal tax rate, then why don't you pay that now? Why don't you volunteer the money and donate what you've earned to the IRS? Your
4: taxes do show that you're a millionaire. You did make a million in 2016, 2017, you're right, the 561 in 2018. But your marginal tax rate rate was 26% because of President Trump's tax cuts. So why not say, you know, I'm leading this revolution, I'm not going to take those.
1: Come on, we're doing, I am, I pay the taxes that I owe. And by the way, why don't you got Donald Trump up here and ask him how much he pays in taxes? Yeah, we will. Yeah, well, 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 I am eagerly awaiting you doing that. Well, we'd love to have you. We would love we'll, to have you know, make that this, question. Get up absolutely and well. the president, I guess the president watches your network a little bit, right? <laughs> hey, President Trump. My wife and I just released 10 years. Please do the same. Let the American people know how
4: All right. But just, just to wrap that up, you do spend a lot of time vilifying millionaires. No, I don't vilifying. vilify. The
1: fact that I think people who are doing phenomenally well right now, as you know, for 40 years, we have seen a shrinking middle class. You've got 40 million people living in poverty. And today, it just so happens that the very wealthy are doing incredibly wealthy. It's not vilifying to say that people have a whole lot of money, in some cases, billions of dollars of wealth, they should pay their fair share.
2: So I like Bernie Sanders' comeback there because I do think it's fair to pose that question to Donald Trump. But if you're just trying to think about the way that the media will will portray that, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, this is whataboutism. This is Bernie Sanders dodging and deflecting and trying to um, get people to pay attention to Donald Trump you know, rather than pay attention to him. And to be fair, you know, I call out Democrats for dodging. So I think it's fair that they call out Bernie here. But still, I do think it's a fair point to be made. However, with that being said, this is why the premise of that question is silly. If Bernie Sanders is advocating for a 52% marginal tax rate, why is it stupid to think that he should volunteer to donate his money to the IRS? Because where's that money going to go? It's going to go towards the war machine, the military-industrial complex. It's going to corporate welfare. It's going to go to oil and gas subsidies. So, there's a really important caveat that they're missing here. The reason why we advocate for higher taxes is because it's a means to an end. It's not about punishing the rich. It's about taking that wealth and redistributing it, making sure that we increase what's available in terms of our social safety net. So, It's a silly question to say, well, you know, take my money now, government, even though I know you're going to use it to kill people abroad. Of course, he shouldn't volunteer that money. Now, you can say, well, maybe he should donate more to charity. And that's fine. That's a fair point to make. He donated 3% to charity. But for the most part, to assume it's reasonable for him to give up the money he earned when we don't really have an adequate social safety net, when you know that Donald Trump will use that revenue for evil... I just don't think that that's reasonable so i think that overall he did an adequate job explaining that but if you thought that he put that issue to rest they brought up his taxes again and asked him once again well why not volunteer to pay more
3: 52 so percent. so would you be willing to pay 52 percent on the money that you made awesome. you can volunteer you can send a well, check you
1: can volunteer too we have a
3: but you suggested bro- suggested
1: that
7: uh, that's what everybody in your brain. Should
1: do. And Martha, why don't you give? You make
2: more money than I do. Why don't
1: you give? I didn't
7: suggest a wealth tax.
2: We get the point. He's a millionaire. We get it. Can we move on? He thoroughly explained already why he's not against wealth in and of itself. He's against greed. He's against wealthy individuals who hoard their wealth. So you'd think they'd put this issue to rest, but nonetheless, they ask him about his taxes. Again.
4: Back on the, the taxes briefly, it, you know when you wrote, wrote the book and you made the money, yeah. isn't that the definition of capitalism, the American dream? No.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, what we want is a country where everybody has opportunity. You know, I have a college degree, Look, I'm a United States senator, but a lot of people don't have a college degree. A lot of people are not United States senators. I want everybody in this country to be able to have health care, to have education, to when they turn on the water, have dr- drinkable water, not toxic water. So what we are fighting for Brett, is a society not where just a few people can make a whole lot of money, but a society where everybody in this country has the opportunity to live in security uh, and dignity.
2: So we spent a good 10 or so minutes on his taxes, and that's fine because Even if it's clear that the hosts were obviously out to get him, I do think that these were questions that were going to come up, given that he just released his tax returns on that very same day. So, I'm glad that he addressed all of this. I think that he probably put their uh, criticisms and concerns to rest, you know, by the second question, by the second time they asked the question about his taxes, but nonetheless— Let's move on. So overall, it's very clear that Bernie Sanders knew how to navigate through this field of biased questions because they were out to get him. But what he did was push back and he still promoted a progressive message in spite of the right-wing agenda. And what I like is that even if he knew the way that they were framing things was disingenuous, he actually exposed flaws in the right and how they actually have a lot of the issues that you accuse us of having. So for example, he was asked the question about the debt and look at the way he flipped it on Donald Trump who just gave out a tax cut to millionaires and billionaires. Watch the way that he masterfully dodges that question, but I think in a substantive and meaningful uh, way.
4: We have a, a shot of the current national debt clock. It stands at more than $22 trillion uh, tonight. And as we're talking here, it is ticking up. You've talked about ways to pay for your plans, but there is a lot of doubt uh, that your plans might actually speed up that clock dramatically. So when you look at that, do you not care about that anymore?
1: I think you're asking the wrong guy. Maybe it's the president you might want to ask.
2: So what he did there was important because he shot down this notion that it's only Democrats who are fiscally irresponsible because the opposite is actually true. The deficit has increased with Republican administrations more so than Democrats. Remember that Barack Obama actually cut the deficit and now it's being increased as a result of Donald Trump spending. So, it's not Democrats who are fiscally irresponsible. And if we want to talk seriously about fiscal responsibility, if anyone cares about that, we should be looking at Republicans. Bernie Sanders actually did a good job at bringing that up. Now, another thing that he shot down was this notion that Democrats are somehow weaker on national defense than Republicans. Because if you'll recall, Barack Obama literally ran out of bombs because he was dropping so many.
4: But your yes. plan does call for significant cuts in defense. Would, would that, would that send a message to the rest of the world that we are weaker? No, 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 no. Which country is the biggest threat to the US? I don't know that I, um, look, I,
1: I don't like using the word threat because I says, oh my God, we have to spend zillions more on the military. I'll, I'll give you an example. Clearly, you know, we are concerned about China, I'm concerned about Russia. But here's the irony here. You got people who say we need to spend even more than $700 billion a year, more than the next 10 nations combined on the military. You know why? Because that China is a real potential enemy. These are the same people who are investing billions of dollars building the Chinese economy. I find that somewhat ironic. All right? So I don't like to use the word enemy. Clearly, we need a strong defense. We need to bring the United States and the rest of the world together, do everything we can to rid this world of nuclear weapons. And I'll tell you what else, in my view, is a national security issue. And that is, we have got as a nation to reject Trump's idea that climate change is a hoax.
2: That was basically a perfect answer. And everything he said there was important. And I think that the way he worded what he was talking about It's going to resonate with everyone, including Fox News' overwhelmingly conservative audience. Because first of all, he demonstrated how the people who are fear-mongering about China, or China, as he calls it, (laughs) he demonstrated that these are the same corrupt people who are investing in China, but yet they're the ones who are simultaneously monopolizing political discourse when it comes to national security. I'm glad he called that out. He also managed to advocate for total denuclearization, which every single progressive should be talking about. If you're not talking about the existential threat that nuclear weapons poses to humanity, then I think that your your platform is lacking with regard to foreign policy. Additionally, he talked about climate change as a national security threat. And he went on to explain why it actually is a literal national uh, national security threat. So it was a phenomenal answer. And there was a lot more that I wanted to show you, but just to kind of give you what I think is a great closing argument. This isn't his actual closing argument, but this is what he says. He kind of makes the case. And I think that this really will resonate with a lot of people. We're
1: the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That's where we are right now. Do you think we should be having the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major nation on earth. We got some moms here who are spending 15, $20,000 a year trying to find quality childcare for their kids. We probably have a childcare system which is more dysfunctional than almost any other country on earth. But we all know that zero <laughs> through four are the most important years. You got hundreds of thousands of bright young people in America today, the wealthiest country in the world. They can't afford to go to college and you got 40 million people struggling with student debt. You really think that we cannot do better as a nation? And on top of that, you got a handful of people who own more wealth than the bottom half of the American society. Now, I understand that we're taking on corporate America, we're taking on the Republicans, we're taking on the Democratic establishment, taking on the drug companies, taking on the insurance companies, taking on the military industrial complex. You know what? It ain't easy. I know that, but I think what the American people know, the American people, I think, are ready to deal with justice in America. That's that's what we're fighting for, and that's economic justice, social justice, environmental justice, racial justice.
2: So, in my view, that was a really powerful case, even better than his closing argument. And I think that Bernie Sanders, what he demonstrated here was that he is fully capable of conversing with people who generally disagree with him. He knows what to look for in terms of bias. He knows how to frame it in a way that would be appealing to a right-wing audience. And it shows that there really is tremendous value in penetrating that right-wing echo chamber and talking to people who you overwhelmingly disagree with. This Fox News audience, regardless of how stacked it was, was incredibly receptive to his message. And I would have to assume that a lot of people at home were probably also convinced, even if that percentage was incredibly small. If he just convinced a small percentage of people overall, that's still important. So by and large, Him going on Fox News was a really good decision, and I know that we didn't talk about healthcare. I've got a different video to talk about that, but by and large, I absolutely enjoyed every single second of this town hall, and this really was Bernie at his best. He came prepared, he came knowing how to respond for the most part to all of their biasly framed questions, and he performed amazingly well. My hat goes off to Bernie. This was great. So, I don't usually do this because when I talk about town halls, I like to kind of address everything that was contained in that one event. But what I want to do now is extract the conversation that Bernie Sanders had with the audience about healthcare and Medicare for all because it was so powerful. It was so persuasive that I think that we need to highlight it individually because it's going to be useful in the future when we actually make the case for Medicare for all when he hopefully one day becomes president. So if you care about Medicare for all, this is your number one issue. Bernie Sanders demonstrated here beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one candidate out of a field of 20 plus people who will actually deliver Medicare for all because he moved past the initial pitch, now he's at phase two where he is thoroughly explaining the policy, he's explaining to people and educating really what to expect. So he clarified to them what he means by Medicare for All, the origins of Medicare, and how Republicans back then when it was passed in the 1960s responded to it listen very carefully to what he's saying because if you support medicare for all if the candidate that you support says they support medicare for all i don't care if you are going for kamala harris or kirsten gillibrand if they're not talking about it in this way then they're not serious about medicare for all listen to what he says and how he explains it and i'll tell you why this matters
5: why do you believe that the
8: government can provide better health care than the private sector and why should people who like their plans be forced to switch
1: Okay, Um, first of all, let's be clear what we mean by Medicare for all, okay? Medicare is a government-run program for seniors, which is widely popular and quite effective. Uh, In 1965, when Lyndon Johnson passed that bill, it was called by some Republicans, socialism and everything else. But you go to the average senior and you say, how do you feel about Medicare? And they will tell you that they will oppose any Republican effort to cut Medicare. And by the way, in Trump's budget, he has proposed an $845 billion cut over a 10-year period to Medicare, which seniors don't want. So to answer your question, we are not talking about government-run health care. The Veterans Administration, and most veterans think that that's a pretty good health care system, talk to the American Legion of the VFW. They strongly defend the uh, veterans' health care. That's government-run. What we are talking about is simply a single-payer insurance program, which means that you will have a card which has Medicare on it. You'll go to any doctor that you want. You'll go to any hospital that you want. And by the way, millions of people today are in networks which prevent them from doing this. So this gives you freedom of choice with regard to the doctors you go to or the hospitals you go to. But here is the main point when we talk about health care. right now, we got 30 million people, zero health insurance, and many of you and tens of millions of Americans are underinsured with high deductibles and copayments. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. All right. So what happens is there are estimates that some 30,000 Americans die every single year because they don't go to the doctor when they should. All right. Meanwhile, we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs One out of five Americans are getting ripped off by the drug companies who make billions in profits while charging us the highest prices in the world. And on top of all of that, we spend twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other nation. So the question that I throw back to you, do you think it makes sense to spend twice as much per capita as the people of any other nation and be the only country in the world not to guarantee health care to all people?
2: So this is important because when we are watching other candidates discuss healthcare, they're still in the deliberation phase. Now, what I mean by that is they still aren't necessarily guaranteed or said on the policy that they want to implement. So, for example, if you watched Andrew Yang's town hall with CNN, he said that he is in the Medicare for all slash public option camp. Well, which is it? You've got to pick one. Because these are two very, very different policy ideas. If you support a public option, then you've got to advocate for that. If you support Medicare for All, then advocate for that. But since most of these candidates are still not even sure about what they want to implement, including Elizabeth Warren... It's clear that they're not serious because what does Bernie Sanders say here? I support Medicare for all. That's the most important thing. And then he moves on to explain it. This is what's going to happen when we pass Medicare for all. You will get a Medicare card. You will then be able to go to any hospital and see any doctor that you want. You'll have the freedom. You'll have stability. And this is really the point that a candidate should be at if they truly support Medicare for All. Now, pretty much every single candidate thus far in the race has not been as good as Bernie Sanders. The only person who I think comes close is Tulsi Gabbard because she's one of the few candidates who has not backtracked, although she's still not as good as Bernie Sanders because she claims that we don't necessarily need to abolish the private health insurance companies. But what your ideal should be is to construct a healthcare plan a single-payer medicare for all system that's so good that they go out of business that we don't need them now you can be concerned about a just transition for employees of health insurance companies but if you're not designing a healthcare policy with the plan of making them go out of business, then you're going to allow for it to be exploited by private companies. If you allow them to exist alongside our single-payer system, you are allowing them to water it down inevitably. So the only two people that even come close, in my view, are Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard. But Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard still have quite a bit of distance between them because Bernie is explaining the specifics of the policy, which, again is where the candidate needs to be if they genuinely support Medicare for All. He also talked about how when it was proposed back in the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson passed it, what were Republicans talking about then? What were they saying about Medicare? The same thing they're saying about Medicare for All now, they're saying this is socialism. It's a takeover. But now, fast forward decades later, if you try to cut Medicare, seniors oppose that. It's overwhelmingly popular, and I could only expect the same to be true when it comes to Medicare for All. So, what he's talking about here is incredibly important. He then moves on to the question of what would happen to people who currently have private insurance through their employers really important discussion. There's a lot of talk about this currently. And I think this specifically is why a lot of candidates, including Tulsi, are a little bit reluctant to say unequivocally that we do need to get rid of the private health insurance companies because they believe employer-based insurance is popular, but people don't really care about that. They care about keeping their doctor. Now, Bernie Sanders explains this and he does a phenomenal job. And it's clear that the audience was receptive to what he was saying.
4: Uh, I want to Ask the audience a question, if you could raise your hand here. A show of hands of how many people get their insurance from work, private insurance, right now. How many get it from private insurance? Okay. Now, of those, how many are willing to transition to what the senator says, a government-run system? Yes. There's 180 million people on private insurance. All right, let's deal with that, Brett. And fair They, question. Would, they Brett. would be lost, right? Well, to a, your Brett, system. Okay. question.
1: Okay, good, question. good. thank and you. And I know it's what the right wing throws out, so let me answer it, all right? <laughs> millions of people every single year lose their health insurance. You know why? They get fired or they quit and they go to another employer. I was a mayor for eight years. You know what I did? What probably every mayor in America does is you look around for the best insurance program, the most cost-effective insurance. You change insurance. Every year, millions of workers wake up in the morning and their employer has changed the insurance that they have maybe they like the doctors people are nodding their heads okay so this is not new every year now what we're talking about actually is stability that when you have a medicare for all it is there now and it will be there in the so future.
2: that is such an important point that he made medicare for all gives you more stability because even if you currently like your private employer-based health insurance Your employer can pull the rug out from under you at any time and just switch it up unilaterally and you'd have no say whatsoever. And additionally, even if you like the insurance that you have, if it's good in your view, if it's cheap, well, you still might not necessarily know that there are gaps. You still might not necessarily know whether or not a particular procedure you may need in the future will be covered. You still may need to see a particular specialist, but you can't. Because that specialist is outside of your insurance network. So, what Medicare for All does is it creates a lot of stability that is currently lacking. Now, moving on to the last clip I want to show you, we get to the fear-mongering aspect. And anytime Republicans talk about Medicare for All, and to be fair, including mainstream media, CNN did this as well, they try to really focus on that aspect of increased taxes Here's what Bernie does here. He explains that even if you are going to be paying higher taxes for Medicare for All, since you will no longer be paying, one, your monthly health insurance premiums, your co-pays, your deductibles, you will still net save money every single year. And even though he doesn't say this, in actuality, it's going to be thousands of dollars for the average American family every single year. This is what he says though.
3: It will drive up taxes to pay for healthcare and not just the wealthy will pay for that, the middle class oh, will also okay. pay for it. very good. So how do you justify it and- All
1: right, Martha, what are you not including in your discussion? You tell me. I will tell you. You're not going to pay any health insurance premiums. <laughs> you're
3: going to pay it one way or the other.
1: But look, Martha. You're
3: pay one way or the other. Martha. Whether it's in your income oh, tax or your payroll tax, you're right, going to pay. Look,
1: Healthcare is not free. You never heard me not. suggest that we're going to match. Magically... You just
3: said it was going to be free for everyone.
1: It's going to be free at the point of when you use it. OK. And you go to. Why are you so shocked by this? Because
3: someone's this is gonna what pay. Call... <laughs>
1: somebody is going to pay. Who are they? Who okay. OK. OK. One, one second. Okay. We'll be talking. Please. We'll get through this, this together. It's a common question. OK. We had, okay. All we right. had we so
3: many email questions Okay Senator Sanders how he is fair going enough. To I got it. It's a fair but question. the
1: first thing. Let's just say hypothetically. Okay, you're a, You are um, Self-employed and you have you got a husband and two kids. Okay family of four Do You know how much that family is paying today for health care? $28,000 a year. Okay. All right. We're spending $11,000 per person We are saying to that family of four you ain't gonna pay that 28,000. You're not paying any more premiums You're not paying any more co-payments you're not paying any more deductibles. How's that? 28,000, you're not paying. But does that mean you're not gonna pay something? Of course it does. You're gonna pay more in taxes.
4: And do members of Congress, who now have gold-plated health insurance- No, we don't. Well, they have a special plan that's outside Obamacare. Uh, Mm. A different plan. Do members members of Congress, are they going to do that transition as well? Damn right, of course, of course.
1: Why would you suggest otherwise? But i, I want to make the point i want to get back to the point that, that martha raised look healthcare costs money every other country or virtually every country does it in the same way we do education for our kids okay when a kid walks into school kid doesn't have to take out a credit card right it's paid for out of public funds that's what most countries do so if you're asking me if your question is a fair question are people going to pay more in taxes yes But at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people are going to end up paying less for health care because they're not paying premiums, co-payments, and deductibles.
2: So even though I think it was painfully clear that that Fox News host who was arguing with him was being purposefully obtuse, I do think that what she was doing was useful because we do need someone to play devil's advocate because like it or not, even if you and I know about this, there are still people who have questions. And I think that Bernie Sanders is equipped to be able to respond with these questions. He has knowledge. He knows about the specifics. He knows about the details. So he should respond to these questions and address these concerns. And it may be frustrating to you and I because we've, we've heard him say the same shit over and over and over again. But if you're going to pitch something like Medicare for All, which really would be a substantial change, then you've got to repeat yourself over and over to make sure that you are abundantly clear. Because anytime you leave a gap, you're essentially inviting in a health insurance shill or a propagandist to fearmonger about what you're proposing and fill in that gap that you left with their own straw man of your proposal. So it's important for him to really be clear about where he stands. And honestly, if you support Medicare for All, This is how you should be talking about Medicare for All in the way that Bernie Sanders is talking about it. Because one, you've got to be clear about what you support. Most candidates are not. And two, you should be at the stage where you're not only clear about what you support, but you've moved on past the pitch. You're now talking about the way it would be implemented and what it would look like. It's why I've said it once. I'll say it again. If Medicare for All is your number one issue, Bernie's your guy. And there's no question about that. On Monday, Bernie Sanders released 10 years' worth of his tax returns, and predictably, this did not silence his critics. Who would thunk it? (laughs) Because what's happening now is we're seeing a lot of goalposts moving. The critique has just evolved. Because now, since he released his tax returns, they're no longer questioning where his tax returns are. They're now criticizing him because he's a millionaire. And the idea that they're trying to pitch to you is that since he's a millionaire and he's previously railed against the greed of millionaires, that must make him inherently hypocritical. Now, the problem with this argument is that it's a straw man because Bernie Sanders, he never once said that wealth in and of itself is inherently bad or evil. He's always been very clear about the fact that he doesn't want millionaires to be greedy. He doesn't think it's appropriate for them to hoard their wealth. So, so long as he doesn't participate in that greed, then I don't see how you can possibly frame him as hypocritical, but nonetheless, this is exactly what media outlets are trying to do. Now, if you're genuinely interested in hearing what Bernie Sanders actually believes when it comes to wealth, I think he did a pretty good job explaining his position at the Fox News Town Hall. So if you have an open mind, then definitely check that out. But nevertheless, the media is using his newfangled status as a millionaire to harp away at his ostensible hypocrisy which again i challenge you to look up any video over the last 30 years doesn't matter pick any random one and when he talks about the millionaires and billionaires he talks about their greed he talks about them buying politicians and essentially rigging elections he's not talking about them just existing he's talking about a very specific issue he has with millionaires their greed but nonetheless When he released his tax returns, just to kind of give you a little bit of a taste before I get to a really quintessential example of them shitting on him for this, this is what they chose to focus on when talking about his tax returns. New York Times... Bernie Sanders released his tax returns. He's part of the 1%. The Washington Post. Welcome to the 1% club, Bernie Sanders. BuzzFeed News. Bernie Sanders' last 10 years of tax returns shows he's now among the millionaires. Breitbart. Bernie Sanders releases 10 years of tax returns, confirming millionaire status. So understand, the headlines aren't reading, Bernie Sanders released 10 years worth of tax returns as promised. Bernie Sanders sets a new standard ahead of 2020, releases tax returns before Donald Trump does. Those aren't the headlines. The headlines are, he is a millionaire. He's part of the 1%. Therefore, you should probably think he's hypocritical. Now, I want to show you a clip from CNN. Uh, I believe the host's name was Aaron Burnett. And this serves as a quintessential example of a biased hit piece because she was so excited to attack Bernie Sanders for his newfound millionaire status that she literally stumbled over her own words in the process of doing so.
7: Breaking news, 2020 presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has released his tax returns. I got very excited, I started getting ahead of myself. Bernie Sanders is a millionaire. Over the past three years, Sanders made nearly $3 million, which makes him, of course, one of the wealthy people that he himself targets on the campaign trail.
1: We are going to ask the millionaires and billionaires of this country to start paying their fair share of taxes. Billionaires and millionaires have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into the political process supporting Republican candidates, and today is payback time for them.
7: Okay, Sanders tonight, though, insists he is not out to make enemies out of the rich.
1: It's not vilifying to say that People have a whole lot of money, in some cases, billions of dollars of wealth. They should pay their fair share of taxes.
7: Okay. Rob Astorino is with me, member of President Trump's 2020 Re-elect Advisory Council, and Jess McIntosh, former director of communications outreach for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Okay, Jess, so, look, as I have been saying, Mm -hmm. Sanders is so lucky to live in a capitalist society. Because he wrote a book about being a socialist. And people bought it. And so he got to make all this money. And he's now made you know a few million dollars over the past few years because of his book. Um, what do you make of the numbers? Obviously, the past year, his numbers fell. he's uh, Half a million dollars. But I mean, all in, he's making a lot of money. I actually
9: don't see too much of a contradiction between being a millionaire and railing against a class that produces millionaires. Where I'm totally dumbfounded is that he has had two years to come up with the so now I'm a millionaire message, and his message is capitalist. He's literally saying, I made a product that the market wanted and I got rich off of it, and all of you can do that too. I, I would have That's not his message. I, I would have suggested that maybe this is a moment to talk about how the system is rigged for people like him, white male privileged with a, a platform, and that hmm. he would want to work to make sure that the system works for everybody. But, Instead, he just did his really defensive, it's not a crime to write a book, and I I don't know where that's coming from or how that serves him. Well,
7: okay, so, Rob, um, he was just asked why he did not pay, because, you know, this whole thing about fair share. Oh, yeah. Okay, so he was asked about, uh, now he's a millionaire, and and, and, and his fair share, and let me play the exchange.
4: Your marginal tax rate rate was 26% because of President Trump's tax cuts, so why not say, you know, I'm leading this revolution, I'm not going to take those. (laughs) Come on, we're doing, I am,
1: I pay the taxes that I owe, and by the way, why don't you got Donald Trump up here and ask him how much he pays in taxes?
7: Okay, the other guy's doing it, so I'm doing it too, is not a good answer. Okay, I think we all can agree, that was not a good answer. Eh. But he should have been ready for that. And by the way, I don't know how a millionaire's paying 26%, he's got a good accountant. Um, what, 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 what do you make of this response?
5: Well, first of all, I was shocked that he actually combed his hair, which was great. That's a great okay, start for a millionaire. Okay, that was unnecessary... Years. No, I, no I, look, here's what he needs to do, and that what they need to do at the University of Vermont. They need to teach a course, and Bernie can be Professor Bernie again, and talk about the virtues of the free market versus socialism, which he espouses, which has collapsed everywhere. Socialism destroys wealth, it destroys freedoms, here wow. he made, as Jess said, and it was a perfect example. He worked hard. I don't envy Bernie Sanders. I'm proud, I'm happy for him that he made $2 million on a book sale. But here's what I would suggest, with that $2 million, here's wow. what, now. here's what he should do. Because in Vermont, they pay the highest monthly premiums for health insurance. He wants to give away free health insurance he could buy the free health insurance for 350 people in Vermont with that $2 million. So
7: that's, that's, that's the thing, because he scoffs, I pay the taxes I owe. By the way, that's, that's, the, that's the rule. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you're Bernie Sanders and you rail against people paying their fair share and you don't have the huge charitable donations and you're not donating money to the IRS, you are a hypocrite.
2: I think that that clip speaks for itself. It's shameless. This is a supposedly objective, non-biased news lady And she literally just called him a hypocrite when she didn't fully demonstrate that he's hypocritical. Now, I love how they played clips of Bernie Sanders talking about the millionaires and billionaires. but what issues does he specifically raise when it comes to the wealthy in this country? He talks about them not paying their fair share. He talks about them buying elections, the same stuff I told you that... He's been talking about. But yet, if you look at the CNN host's smug little face, you know, after she played those clips, she was thinking, got him. I fucking got him. Owned. I just destroyed you, Bernie Sanders. (laughs) But you didn't destroy him because you're not showing him talking about wealth being inherently bad or evil because he didn't say that. So you have no reason to be smug and purport that he's hypocritical when he has been saying the same shit he's been saying for decades. But she then brings on Trump and Hillary campaign alumni who already hate Bernie Sanders and then they proceed to attack him. I mean, you know exactly that she wasn't trying to aim for objectivity or even neutrality. She just brought on people who she could shit on Bernie Sanders with, and it was downright shameless. But here's what Aaron Burnett says. Sanders is so lucky to live in a capitalist society because he wrote a book about being a socialist and people bought it, and he got to make all of this money. Now, she says that as if it's confirmation that the American dream is still alive. No, this doesn't prove anything because statistically, if the average American wrote a book, if they were even able to publish a book to begin with, the chances of them making it on the bestseller list is still basically non-existent. They're still statistically unlikely to be successful. And first and foremost, they'd also need the education to be able to write a book. So, by simply claiming here that this is proof that capitalism works and that this is proof that the American dream is alive and well, and they didn't explicitly say that, but it was heavily implied you're not making a very persuasive argument. Bernie Sanders is a United States senator who ran a very successful insurgent 2016 presidential campaign. The chances of somebody replicating that success is next to 0%. Maybe one or two other people in our lifetimes will be able to do that again. So the point is that capitalism is not working because the average American cannot do what Bernie Sanders managed to accomplish— he recognizes that. The CNN host does not. Now, the Hillary Clinton alumni, she claims that Bernie Sanders has a capitalist message. He just does, because now he's saying that capitalism is good. If you want to be successful, you can write a best selling book too. But she says that he should be talking about unrigging the system so more people can be successful. Except, what are you talking about? That's the crux of his message. Have you not been paying attention? I mean, these people are so disingenuous. It's like they're plugging their ears, not listening to what Bernie Sanders is saying, and then they're criticizing him for not saying things he's been saying throughout the course of his career. It's absurd. And furthermore, of course, he's a capitalist. He's a social democrat. That means he believes in a mixed economy. He's not saying that we should nationalize the entirety of the economy. He's saying what we do is we socialize the sectors of the economy that provide us with basic necessities, healthcare education, and we simply leave industries that are not essential goods to the private market. That's what he's saying. That's been his philosophy throughout the course of his career. Now, towards the end of that clip, the Trump stand-in, he basically, you can tell, he was biting his tongue because he was trying so hard not to say the words Venezuela. He really wanted to say Venezuela, but he knows that if he said that, we're going to make fun of him relentlessly. We're going to meme him. So he didn't say it, but nonetheless, he still um, attacked Bernie Sanders. The CNN host then went on to call him a hypocrite, as you all saw. And, you know, she claims since he's not donating more of his wealth to the IRS or to charities, gotcha. (laughs) that's a really silly proposition because the point of wanting to pay higher taxes is to expect a return on that investment. I don't just want millionaires and billionaires to pay higher taxes because it's intrinsically good. No, it's a means to an end. When Bernie Sanders says that we should be implementing a 52% marginal tax rate, which I think is um, too charitable, I think it should be higher, um, what he's expecting is, is a return on that investment he's saying that we tax the rich to fund a social safety net but if we currently don't really have a strong social safety net then if you willingly give up that money to the irs all you're doing is you're funding the war machine you're giving that money to donald trump where he's then going to subsidize oil and gas companies so it's pointless to do that now now you can make the case that he should be donating more of his money to charities Uh, but he already is donating 3%. You can say that um, he should donate more. But I mean, even if if, if he donated 10%, you're still going to criticize him. There's no way he'll be able to adequately satisfy his critics here because you're just going to attack him no matter what. And you'll keep moving that goalpost because the goal ultimately is to defeat Bernie Sanders. So you're going to do that with whatever means necessary. Now, this next clip, I'm going to show you a short clip, one last clip where they're going to essentially tell you to Not believe your lying eyes. Not believe what Bernie Sanders said because they're going to argue, the Hillary alum will argue that he actually did, in fact, change his message. Now, are we going to get a direct quote? Are we going to get video footage? Nope. And then towards the end of this clip, I'm going to show you, before I even show you it, take a guess as to who they're going to try to compare him to. Just take a guess. Let's watch.
9: When he spent the weekend attacking a liberal outlet for correctly citing that he has changed in his speeches, railing against millionaires and billionaires to railing against multimillionaires and billionaires, the defensiveness just shows that it really undermines the integrity of his message and the integrity of his message was what Bernie Sanders had. So can I just play? who he's starting to sound a lot like,
7: right? I pay what I owe. By the way, Donald Trump says that and is completely unashamed. I pay what I owe and why would I pay a dollar more? Okay. That's right, every um,
5: American should here,
7: do that. Here, um, here are Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump talking about their books.
1: I don't apologize for writing a book that was number three on the New York Times, that seller translated into five or six languages. Uh,
4: that. I wrote The Art of the Deal, which is, in all fairness, I think the number one selling business book of all time. <laughs>
7: sorry. <laughs> it's I mean, great. it is it's funny. Great. It is funny. Well, look, one why are these guys so ju-
2: alike? Oh, look, it's the old Bernie is the Trump of the left argument that all of a sudden, every single journalist in that D.C. bubble is trotting out. You know, it's almost as if There's this cabal of journalists that secretly meet to all agree on one message that they're going to use so that way when they attack Bernie Sanders, they do so with a message that is uh, uniform. That's what it seems like. Now, it's probably just DC groupthink and, you know, since Dana Milbank of the Washington Post published a relatively popular article that was shared by elites, they're all just parroting what they hear, but for the most part, if they don't want us to think that they're all, you know, meeting and agreeing on the way in which they want to specifically attack Bernie, they need to do a better job at thinking for themselves and not just parroting what everyone else has to say. Because that's what it seems like. You're comparing him to Donald Trump when he's literally the antithesis of Donald Trump. Now, in case you were wondering— What the Hillary Clinton campaign alumni went on to say about this, she invoked identity politics and said if Bernie Sanders, or she said if a woman said what Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump said, they would be criticized. If Elizabeth Warren said what Bernie Sanders says here, she would be criticized. These people are one-trick ponies. They're one-trick ponies. If you are from Team Trump, you're going to fear about socialism and save Venezuela or come close to saying it. I know he wanted to say it. And if you're from Hillary's team, you're just going to, you know, uh, weaponize identity politics to use that against the left in order to prove that you actually are liberal and you're not just a conservative, economically speaking. So this is obviously a hit piece. It was really shameless. And I think this is the quintessential example of modern media bias because they don't really even care how it looks they've really given up this notion that they're even trying to maintain the facade of objectivity or even neutrality i mean it's that brazen it's that shameless so obviously it's the case that bernie sanders being a millionaire does not prove that he's a hypocrite but nonetheless expect them to continuously try to convince you over the course of the next month or so that he is, in fact, a hypocrite. And they'll only move on from this attack and really this smear once they find something else that they think will actually land. It's really downright disgusting and disingenuous, but it's what we expect from the corporate news media who's trying to protect the status quo from a Bernie Sanders presidency that would destroy the status quo. The supposedly fair and balanced news network, Fox News, decided to do a segment about Bernie Sanders and specifically talk about his Medicare for All plan. And the name of the segment is The Loony Left. I mean, have they just even given up the facade that they are fair and balanced in any way? Because if you have a segment called The Loony Left, I think it's safe to say you are officially just Owning the fact that you are the Republican Party propaganda wing. But nonetheless, the host of this segment, Steve Hilton, he's British. So he's talking about this from the position of authority. You should, you know, believe what he's saying because he comes from a country with socialized medicine and he knows what he's talking about. So you should take him seriously above all else. The problem is he gets the most basic detail about his own healthcare system completely wrong, completely backwards. And there's a lot of other stupidity that you will hear in this segment. So let's watch it and then I have quite a bit to say.
10: This week, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders announced a new extreme version of his health policy. It would nationalize one eighth of the US economy in what would be the biggest act of economic centralization in the history of the world. Medicare for all is tonight's loony left. All right, so I just want to, look, I know something about this. I I was in the UK, I worked in the UK government, the National Health Service, which is a mild version of what Bernie Sanders is proposing here. We tried to reform it, it's too centralised, it's too bureaucratic, we failed. I just want to focus not on the idea and wouldn't it be, yes, I'm I'm all for universal coverage, I've said that many times, there are different ways of getting there through the marketplace. Mm -hmm. This, just think about the operational thing here, right? He published this bill, this is about setting a budget, this is what they literally mean, for every hospital in America, every medical practice is going to have a budget set by the federal government, they're going to be paid on a quarterly basis by the federal government, every single one, it's insanity.
9: I think we're past insanity at this point with some of the policies that are coming out of the left. I mean, who, who cares? You don't need your private health insurance. Um, what I'd like to know is, you know, you have Medicare-eligible candidates on the Democrat side. Are they on Medicare? Because if it's so great, they probably <laughs> should be, Steve. But more importantly, these elected officials have these Cadillac insurance policies right. that go on for a lifetime. So instead of Medicare for all, why aren't they campaigning for my health care for all? Because they're getting Supreme Health Care. This is getting more and more crazy by the day. We're talking about putting 20 million seniors off of their Advantage program. We're talking about 181 million people losing their private health insurance, killing over a half a million jobs and decreasing the amount of income into families. It's it's insane.
5: I believe at the core of this, it is furthering the competition of who can give out the most amount of stuff to win the Democrat primary. That's what
1: this is really about. Who can promise the most amount of stuff to win votes? It is so beyond
5: realistic, it's almost not even worthy of even analyzing the policy, similar to the Green New Deal. But unfortunately, it it is deadly serious because it's now gaining traction in the US Senate. We're supposed to treat a complete national takeover it's on unbelievable. something that 108 million people have private health care that have millions of jobs? Of course not. But what is serious is the Democrat Party has no principles. They just want power. Well, it's whatever interesting. they That's need to do to defeat Donald quick, Trump Think about the most amount of
10: last
3: stuff. Here. Well, as a Canadian, so who's
7: born-raised Canadian, I do not want universal health care in any way. It's such a it's such a
11: spectacularly bad idea that it's passed the California legislature three times, and even Governor Jerry <laughs> <General laughs> Brown vetoed it, saying there is no way we can afford oh. it. If you
9: can't do it here good point
2: okay well that was um certainly something (laughs) wow so i don't even know where to begin let's just take it from the top the guy from the uk literally said that what bernie sanders is proposing with medicare for all goes further than the uk's national health system he says quote the uk's national health service is a mild version of what Bernie Sanders is proposing. Do you know anything about your own healthcare system? In the UK, doctors and nurses are literally government employees. Is that what Bernie Sanders is proposing here? No, it is not. But what Medicare for All is, is a compromise between an entirely for-profit system and an entirely nationalized system where the government is the single payer and doctors are still independent. We're not going to nationalize independent hospitals. We're not going to do that. We are going to be the single payer who will act on the behalf of every single American. That's what that is. It's the compromise. So to say that the UK doesn't go as far as Bernie's plan is so wrong the opposite is actually true. Now, to be from the UK, that doesn't give you any legitimacy because you can still say very crazy things. But the point is that we want to make healthcare free at the point of service and there are a number of ways to do that. There are health systems like the UK. There are single-payer systems like Canada and hopefully the United States. And there are even private-based systems that are heavily subsidized and covered, like in France. And that's an oversimplification, but there are various ways to do this. The point is we make healthcare free at the point of service. But this dunce literally said that what Bernie is proposing goes further than a national health system. I mean, it's in the name, national health system. The difference is obvious between single payer and national health system. Is Bernie Sanders proposing to make doctors government employees? No, he's not. Now, I'm assuming that Steve Hilton is just dumb and didn't know that. But if you honestly want to present yourself as a serious person, you have to get basic details right, especially if you're going to pitch yourself as the guy who knows about UK health laws. So, wow. Um, Also, he says, for every hospital in America, it's going to have a budget set by the federal government. They're going to be paid on a quarterly basis. It's insanity. Okay. Okay first of all, again, Bernie Sanders is not nationalizing hospitals. Like, I I genuinely don't think he realizes this. He's not nationalizing hospitals. They can still be privately run, but the difference is that instead of us individually negotiating prices and paying bills, the government is going to do that on our behalf. And if they pay quarterly, why why does that matter? Currently, if let's say you get hit with a $100,000 bill for a surgery, you're not going to be able to pay that off. You're going to have to make monthly payments. You may have to file bankruptcy. So it may be years before they get that payment. The hospital could be out of that money. So how is our current system preferable? He knows nothing and he calls it insanity. How is that insane? You're insane because you don't know what you're talking about. Now, additionally, Katrina Pearson says this is getting more crazy by the day. We're talking about putting 20 million seniors off of their Medicare Advantage programs. We're talking about 180 million people losing their private health insurance. Again, these people, they're they are talking about something that they clearly know nothing about. Do you even know why Medicare Advantage exists? What Medicare Advantage does is it fills the gaps left open by medicare currently so what bernie sanders wants to do is he wants to close those gaps improve medicare and then expand it so medicare advantage will no longer be necessary so if you don't need medicare advantage because those holes in our current medicare system are closed then that's good that's a good thing nobody just likes having medicare advantage because you know they think that the operator who you talk to if you call is lovely. It's a necessity. She also says that people are going to lose their private insurance. Well, you're not losing anything if you're gaining more stability, if you're gaining more care, if you can see any doctor and go to any hospital and you're not restricted to whoever is in your network. So, these people are saying things really confidently Which makes them more believable, but they're completely wrong. They're getting it exactly backwards, and it's fucking loony to me. Now, Charlie Kirk says this is about who can promise the most amount of stuff to win votes. No, it's actually about promising to use our tax dollars more wisely because it's not free if we're getting back what we invested in the economy. Whenever I pay my tax dollars, I'm expecting a return on that because our tax dollars is an investment. We're pooling resources to make society better. But currently, under the administration, who you constantly suck off and show for, Charlie, all they're doing is using our money for more wars to give tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires. So if you want to talk about freebies, don't pretend like that's something that is unique to Democrats and Bernie Sanders, even if you're going to buy into this notion that what he's proposing qualifies as freebies in the first place. Republicans promise free stuff all the time. What do you think tax cuts are? What do you think increasing that military budget is? It's freebies to defense contractors. What do you think oil and gas industry subsidies are? It's freebies. So... You need to be clear about where you stand. You're not necessarily inherently against freebies. You just don't want freebies going to the poor. You want it to benefit the rich because, as MLK says, what the right wants is socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. That's what you're about. So we can't have freebies. Only the rich can have freebies. And again, that's if we buy into this idea that what we're getting is freebies because it's not free if my tax dollars fund it. That's not free. If you go to the store and you buy an Xbox, for example, it's not free because you use your money to pay for that. So in the same line of thinking, if we are still using our money, our tax dollars to pay for healthcare, it's not free, is it? We're just actually having our tax dollars be used more wisely instead of blowing up brown people in the Middle East and North Africa. But these are smear merchants, they're liars, and this is Fox News. Now, I love how they brought on the Canadian to talk about how horrible Canada's healthcare is, and she didn't say specifically why it's bad. She just said, well, I'm a Canadian, and it's bad. Okay, well, what specifically is bad about it? Because I know a Canadian who thinks Canada's healthcare system is better than the United States, David Dole. So, he basically cancels you out. (laughs) But if I had to guess, if she were to go on to make an argument, she'd say something, something, wait times. And then I'd respond by saying, well, we have wait times here. And then she'd respond by saying, well, it's worse. And then I'd respond by saying, well, how many people die in Canada because of wait times? And she'd respond by saying, uh, Kyle's... And before I continue to talk more about the token Canadian, I have to note here because I I forgot about this. So Katrina Pearson says that Medicare for all would lead to 50,000 jobs being lost and then Charlie Kerr comes in and he says it's going to lead to millions of jobs being lost. Well, how much is it? Certainly, I think that it's important that we do a just transition so people in the insurance industry, they don't lose their jobs. But if, let's say, hypothetically speaking, there's no just transition and people end up losing jobs, but we get Medicare for All, is it worth it? Fuck yeah, it's worth it because losing your job is not as bad as dying because you don't have health insurance. These are two... Very different things here. Both of them are bad, but one of them is exponentially worse. So let's do what we can to make that transition a just transition. And Bernie Sanders is sensitive to this fact, as is Pramila Jayapal, who is proposing the House version. But they're trying to fearmonger because whatever they can possibly throw against Medicare for All, They just hope it sticks they hope that some argument against it resonates now back to the token canadian she alludes to the fact that this probably can't work because in california jerry brown wouldn't even sign it in his very deep blue state except it never got on jerry brown's desk and jerry brown probably wouldn't sign it because he's a corporate democrat and it was killed before it got to his desk by another corporate democrat but what we need to do is be very clear about the difference between state-run single-payer and national single-payer even though states should be moving towards their own version of single-payer logistically speaking it is easier to do that at the federal level because if a state like california acts as the single-payer in a market where there's still private insurance if that means that they'd have to forego federal subsidies to become the single-payer it is a lot more complicated. Now, that's still no excuse. They should still be trying to do what they can to move towards single payer, but is it more difficult at the state level? Yeah, it is because we live in an environment where California doesn't exist in a vacuum, it exists among other states. So it's easier. And this is why it makes more sense to talk about single payer in the context of it being implemented at the federal level, because that's just more logistically feasible, because you have so many different dynamics at play here, that it does make it more complicated for states to implement it. Now again, I'm not saying that they should get a pass for not implementing it, because you better be damn well trying to get your own version of single-payer in the meanwhile, but for the most part, if we're going to talk single-payer, it just makes more sense logistically to do it nationally. But Again, these are all bad faith actors making bad faith arguments against Medicare for all because they're on Fox News, they're rich, and they don't care. They don't care. And going back to Charlie Kirk real quick, one last thing I want to say, he rails against freebies, but he's not returning the freebies, the free money he's taking from right-wing billionaires who are funding his shitty organization that's supposed to be appealing to millennials, but only reaches boomers on Facebook. I mean... (laughs) These are all people who are failures, who are only propped up and successful because of right-wing money. So, as much as they love the free market, they benefit from right-wing socialism. It's their own kind of condensed version of socialism. They just don't want socialism for you and I. They want rugged individualism for you and I and socialism for them. So, that's all I'll say about this. Lots of wrong things said. Steve Hilton, um, as someone who's British, He really should know at least the basics when it comes to their national health system. He really should, because it's embarrassing to think that Medicare for All goes further than the Britain NHS. That's honestly stupid. So, I want to talk about what I think is a bombshell article that was recently published in the New York Times. This is a piece by Jonathan Martin, and it's titled... Stop Sanders Democrats Agonize Over Bernie Sanders' Momentum. Now, there are two implications embedded in that headline. The first is that there's a group of Democrats who are firmly in the camp of, we need to stop Bernie. The second implication is that they're terrified because out of all of the declared candidates, he's the frontrunner. So there's a lot that you can take away from this article just by reading the headline. But if you go deeper, it tells me that There is actually a concerted effort to stop Bernie Sanders by members of the Democratic Party establishment. And we're going to get to some specific paragraphs here that allude to that. But first of all, when we talk about these Stop Sanders Democrats, the reasons they claim they're against Bernie Sanders is because they don't necessarily think that he is best suited to defeat Donald Trump, or they're worried that him winning the nomination will catalyze a third-party challenge by someone like Howard Schultz. But for the most part, what we need to take away from this is that there are powers within the Democratic Party establishment that are dedicated to stopping his momentum and they are actively trying to concoct ways that they can undermine him. So let's get to some specifics here. So Jonathan Martin writes, The discussion about Mr. Sanders has to date been largely confined to private settings because, like establishment Republicans in 2016, Democrats are uneasy about elevating him or alienating his supporters. The matter of what to do about Bernie and the larger imperative of party unity has, for example, hovered over a series of previously undisclosed Democratic dinners in New York and Washington organized by longtime party financer Bernard Schwartz. The gatherings have included scores from the moderate or center-left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi of California, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, minority leader, former Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, himself a presidential candidate, and the president of the Center for American Progress, Neera Tandon. So let's just stop and try to take in what was just confirmed in this article. There are previously undisclosed Democratic dinners where the subjects what to do about Bernie and party unity has come up. And the individuals who partook in these discussions include Democratic Party leadership, Center for American Progress president and neoliberal Nira Tandon, and Pete Buttigieg, currently officially confirmed to be conspiring with leadership to undermine Bernie Sanders. Now, if you want to be overly charitable here, you can say, well, look, they're talking about two things. They're talking about, one, what to do about Bernie, and two, how we can foster party unity. So maybe it's the case that they're talking about unifying behind Bernie Sanders, because it looks like he's going to be the no- <laughs> But also, it could very well be the case that they're talking about how they're going to be able to cultivate party unity after they fuck him over again. Now, for me, I mean, I'm sorry, but I am a lot more cynical about the Democratic Party because the Democratic primary in 2016 was disgusting. It was disgraceful. They overtly rigged it against Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm not saying that they fixed it, that it was impossible for Bernie Sanders to win, but what happened was the DNC colluded with Clinton's team to give her an unfair advantage. It even screwed over Lawrence LeSig, Martin O'Malley, so it wasn't just Bernie Sanders. So after seeing that they did that, after hearing the DNC's lawyers admit that if they truly wanted to, it would be legal for them to just unilaterally choose the Democratic nominee in a smoke-filled room, I'm going to interpret this in the most cynical way possible, because history dictates that that's what we should do. So Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Pete Buttigieg, Terry McAuliffe, Neera Tandon are all meeting behind closed doors to discuss the matter of what to do about Bernie Sanders. Wow. Wow. It's... Honestly, not surprising, but you'd think after 2016, when they were exposed, they'd be a little bit less brazen about trying to undermine Bernie Sanders in such a public way. Now I know why these dinners were previously undisclosed, and to think that Pete Buttigieg himself, who is a presidential candidate who I think would want impartiality, he's meeting with Democratic Party leadership, talking about this as well. What's so special about Pete that he gets to be included in these conversations? If you're going to genuinely have a good faith argument about what we can do to foster party unity, wouldn't you want to include the other presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, even Joe Biden, people who actually have a real shot at winning, but they chose to bring in Pete Buttigieg. That tells you a lot about him. Now, another thing that is discussed in this article is superdelegates. So, it is possible that since there are so many candidates running, that could splinter the vote among the establishment centrist wing of the party, which would give Bernie Sanders a plurality, but it very much could be the case that Bernie doesn't get enough votes to secure the nomination in the first round. So they talk about this prospect of what would happen in the event a second vote came up and whether or not they'd rule out choosing someone other than Bernie. And it seems like they don't want to do that because obviously if you just steal an election away from Bernie publicly in front of everyone, you essentially guarantee a Trump victory. So it seems like they don't want to do that, but let me read to you what they specifically say. Quote, if I had to bet today, we'll get to Milwaukee and not have a nominee, said Leah Daughtry, who was neutral in the 2016 Democratic Party primary. Now, this is someone who is a DNC member. The reason she theorized is simple. Super Tuesday, when at least 10 states vote comes just three days after the last of four early states. After that, nearly 40% of the delegates will have been distributed and, she suspects, carved up among Democrats so that nobody can emerge with a majority. Unlike Republicans who used a winner-take-all primary format, Democrats use a proportional system, so candidates only need to garner 15% of the votes in a primary or caucus to pick up delegates. And even if a candidate Fails to capture 15% statewide, he or she could still win delegates by meeting that vote threshold in individual congressional districts. Should no bargain be struck by the time of the first roll call vote at the 2020 convention in Milwaukee, such as a unity ticket between a pair of the leading delegate winners, the nomination battle would move to a second ballot. And under the new rules crafted after the 2016 race, that is when the party insiders and elected officials known as superdelegates would be able to cast. A binding vote. The specter of superdelegates deciding the nomination, particularly if Mr. Sanders is a finalist, is highly unappetizing to party officials. If we have a role, so be it. But I'd much prefer that it be decided in the first round, just from a unity standpoint, said Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. So it seems like if they're going to undermine Bernie Sanders, what I get from that is that they're going to try to do it in a covert way, hence why they're doing these private closed-door meetings, because again, if you truly want to defeat Donald Trump, and I believe that most Democrats do, not all of them, but most truly want to defeat Trump, then you can't just take this person who has the plurality of pledged delegates and snatch it away from them and give the nomination to someone else. They will lose in perhaps a landslide election and guarantee that Trump is elected four more years. So, this would make them incredibly delegitimate, which you'd think that they would already be delegitimized after 2016. But nonetheless, if you do it in such a brazen way like they did, or like like they could potentially do, that could be harmful. So it's clear to me that we need to not necessarily be as worried about the second round superdelegate vote, even though it should still be on our minds. We need to be more worried about the more covert ways that they're going to try to undermine Bernie Sanders. And now there's literally a group of Stop Sanders Democrats discussing what to do about Bernie, including Democratic Party leadership, Pete Buttigieg, Neera Tanden, and it's disgusting. If you genuinely are concerned about the prospect of party unity, you've got to stop with stuff like this. But just keep in mind, there's a group of Democrats who are trying to actively undermine Bernie Sanders. And that is really disgusting, but is it surprising? Not at all. Not at all. It's exactly what I expected because this was my initial prediction. Seeing how they undermine Bernie in 2016, are they going to do it again? I think so, but they're going to do it in a different way. They're not going to limit debates, for example. They're going to do it in a way that we wouldn't expect because, I mean, lightning never strikes the same place twice, right? So why would they do it the same way? They're going to think of new ways to screw over progressives. Now, what could be something that happens is Bernie Sanders just overcomes the rigging because he's so overwhelmingly popular now. He has the name recognition. He's the front runner. So he could trump the field and this may not matter. But nonetheless, in the future going forward, regardless if he wins or not, these are the things that Democrats have got to stop. And it's why we have to change the makeup of the party leadership and the establishment. Because it's disgusting. They're not about democracy. They're about protecting their own. They're about protecting the status quo. And it's morally reprehensible. Okay, so we've got to talk about this story in the New York Times that I think is just Bonkers because essentially what it's about is this rivalry between Neera Tanden and Bernie Sanders campaign but what they reveal about Neera Tanden these are very explosive details that blew my mind so the title is The Rematch Bernie Sanders versus a Clinton loyalist and this was written by Elizabeth Williamson and Kenneth Vogel Now the first revelation that I learned about Neera Tandon is that she literally physically assaulted Bernie Sanders' campaign manager once. Literally. And she admitted that she physically assaulted him. So... Here's what they say about that. In 2008, Neera Tandon, then a top aide on Hillary Clinton's first presidential campaign, accompanied Ms. Clinton to what was expected to be an easy interview at the Center for American Progress, the influential group founded by top Clinton aides. But Faiz Shakir, the chief editor of the think tank's Think Progress website, Asked Mrs. Clinton a question about the Iraq War, an issue dogging her candidacy because she had supported it. Miss Tandon responded by circling back to Mr. Shakir after the interview and, according to a person in the room, punching him in the chest. Quote, I didn't slug him, I pushed him, a still angry Miss Tandon corrected in a recent interview. What? So let's just be extra charitable to Neera Tanden, even though she'd never do this to us, but let's just, for argument's sake, let's say she only pushed him. You have absolutely no right to put your hands on anyone. You are not entitled to physically assault someone because they did something that you don't like. I mean, the Democratic Party itself screams about journalists. You all screamed the loudest, and I think rightfully so, when a journalist was body slammed by a Republican, but you pushed a journalist? This is incredibly bizarre, but the story itself gets weirder weirder, because, for whatever reason, the New York Times journalists who penned this piece thought it was a good idea to bring in near Tandon's mom, and her mom kind of does her dirty here and kind of exposes her. So, <laughs> this is what they say about Nira Tandon's mom. Still, Miss Tandon's mother, Maya Tandon, says that her daughter, quote, can be very aggressive. She's not going to let anyone rule over her, she said. And she has loyalty to Hillary because Hillary is the one who made her. Those Bernie brothers are attacking her all the time, but she lets them have it too, Maya Tandon said. She says Sanders got a pass in 2016, but he's not getting a pass this time so i resent being called a bernie brother miss tandon because we are now known as bernard brothers we're more sophisticated we're older now we're more mature we're more strategically savvy politically astute we're now bernard brothers so don't call us bernie bros anymore now, with that being said, um, this doesn't make it okay. Oh, well, she has a temper. It's not an excuse. And I I don't know if her mom is trying to do pro-Nira apologia, but I mean, how is this acceptable? I hate to use this argument, but if a Republican did it, Democrats would be screeching about this from the rooftops. But because Nira Tandon did it, It's okay. She still can go on to lead the Center for American Progress, maybe the leading Democratic establishment think tank. It's weird. This is such a weird story. Now, this article goes on to talk about donors that the Center for American Progress has and how those donors are essentially the same donors as the Clinton Foundation. And additionally, Neera's mom chimes in again and... (laughs) It kind of does her dirty again. So they write, Its donor roles overlap substantially with those of the Clinton's campaigns and foundation. The think tank has taken in millions from interests often criticized by liberals, including Wall Street financiers, big banks, Silicon Valley titans, foreign governments, defense contractors, and the healthcare industry. Individual donors can ask to remain anonymous. Quote, That's what she does. She shows up at rich people's places because she needs funds from them, Miss Tandon's mother said. That place runs on Neera Tandon. Wow. Wow. That's all I'll say. Wow. Now, what they go on to explain is the way that Neera Tandon isn't just taking money from individuals and industries that she shouldn't be taking money from if she truly wants to be progressive if you are the head of an organization that has progressive in its name but nonetheless it's not just that she's taking money from people who could potentially influence her and how she runs that organization but there's an explicit example about what she did to court someone to the center for american progress to recruit someone to the board and it involves the legitimization of someone like benjamin Netanyahu, who is a literal war criminal who is overseeing modern-day apartheid. Proudly so. So, they write, In November 2015, after Ms. Tandon invited Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel to a question-and-answer session at the center, a dozen staff members stood during an all-staff meeting and read a statement of protest— Quote, "...our goal is to promote humanity and shut down oppression and genocide and terrorism. Bringing in another head of state with a record of oppression would further push our mission away," it read in part. In an email Miss Tandon sent on the day of the Netanyahu visit, stolen and released by WikiLeaks, she told the think tank's founder, John D. Podesta, that the far left hates me for hosting Mr. Netanyahu, but the invitation may have sealed the deal with a new board member. Miss Tandon was wooing Mr. Levine a pro-Israel philanthropist. The next month, Ms. Tandon wrote a jubilant email to Mr. Podesta telling him Mr. Levine was joining the board. So Netanyahu is worth it, she added with a smiley face emoji. Mr. Levine no longer sits on the center's board, but his foundation remains a big donor. The Netanyahu event was arranged with the public and private support of the Obama administration and the notion that it was done at the behest of any donor is preposterous, a center spokeswoman said. Except it's Not preposterous because there are emails that you don't say are fake. Like these are authentic emails that WikiLeaks released. And regardless of how they got it, it proved that she explicitly did it at the behest of a donor. So to say that that notion is preposterous, no, to say that that's preposterous is preposterous. She literally brought on a war criminal to do a QA. I'm guessing a softball QA, all to court. Mr. Levine. And it worked. And she was jubilant about that. Unbelievable. One last thing I want to read to you. Quote, Ms. Tandon acknowledged tensions with what she called (laughs) millennial agitators in her party, but blamed Mr. Trump, who made, quote, crazy radical ideas seem more normal, she said in the interview. So I'm assuming I'm one of the so-called millennial agitators since Near attendant actually has me blocked on Twitter. And furthermore, crazy ideas that we have, quote unquote, crazy ideas that we're proposing, they're not just the left equivalent of what Donald Trump is proposing. What we're proposing, these aren't radical concepts. When you look at public opinion polls for policies like Medicare for All, free college, a Green New Deal, a federal jobs guarantee, regulating Wall Street, getting money out of politics, they're overwhelmingly popular. So just because they're not policies that are adopted by the status quo in D.C. doesn't mean that they're radical. If they're supported by most Americans, then by definition, these are the mainstream ideas. We're taking populist policy positions. But, you know, she doesn't like the millennial agitators. Well, maybe stop being so corrupt. Maybe stop fighting against us by lying and smearing to defend the status quo. Maybe try doing something that you haven't tried before, Nira. Maybe try making a good faith, policy-based argument in favor of whatever candidate that you support. Now, they'll say, I don't support a candidate, but there's a different article in the New York Times that details how you met with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Pete Buttigieg to talk about what to do about Bernie Sanders. So even if you claim you don't have a favorite, even if you claim you don't have someone who you dislike, I mean, you're basically at this point pissing on our legs and you're trying to convince us it's raining. Not going to happen. We know what you're all about. So in this article, they also talk about how um according to Judd Legum who i believe is the new editor of Think Progress he claims how Center for American Progress as a think tank no longer has legitimacy among the left or it has diminished legitimacy or a legitimacy crisis something along those lines i'm paraphrasing because of all of these things yeah i don't view the center for american progress as an ally and you'd think that i would because i'm a progressive and this organization is ostensibly progressive because it has the word progress in the name but in actuality this is a right-wing organization and there are some policy positions it takes that are far right you hosted a a q a with benjamin netanyahu at the behest of a donor and then you told us that that's not what you did unreal but overall just kind of stepping back Nira Tandon punched someone she is overtly corrupt she does things she goes out of her way to do things to lure donors and um she denies what she does out in the open unbelievable it's not um that surprising but i'll be honest i was a little bit shocked by the revelation that she physically assaulted bernie's now campaign manager I don't know how she has any cre- credibility in dc whatsoever i don't know how she has a job um again if a republican did that they would rightfully be universally condemned especially by democrats but because it's near its hand and everybody loves her uh keith ellison will hold her hand and talk about how much of a fierce progressive she is and democrats will rely on her for you know the creation of public policy when she basically is doing everything she can to undermine progressives. We propose Medicare for All, she proposes a watered down half measure. She's horrible. It seems like she's not just a politically bad person, but in general, personally, this article tells me that she is a bad person just in general, which um, is sad because I try to disaggregate the politics from the personality, but it seems like Neera Tanden really is how she presents herself to us. She's kind of a shitty person. So I think it's pretty evident to most Americans that there is currently a fundamental lack of social cohesion. We're polarized, we are increasingly tribalistic, we're seeing the rise of white supremacy and political factionalization. Even within the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, there's different factions. So Obviously, social cohesion is an issue, and if you are president, I do want you to be thinking about ways that you can increase social cohesion, how you can foster that um, that type of spirit of, I guess, camaraderie with fellow Americans. But the way that Pete Buttigieg, 2020 presidential candidate, is proposing we foster social cohesion, it struck me when I heard him talk about this, because... I don't like what he pitches as his plan to foster social unity. Take a look.
8: Um, I'm really glad I did get the chance to serve it helped me connect with very different Americans people especially when I was deployed to Afghanistan who um, I had almost nothing in common with different politics different generation different racially different regionally but you learn to trust each other with your life because that's what the job requires. And. I want more Americans to have that, but I don't want you to have to go to war to get it. It's one of the reasons I think national service will hopefully become one of the themes of the 2020 campaign, because if we really wanna talk about the threat to social cohesion that uh, that helps uh, characterize this presidency, but also just this era. Now, one thing we could do that would help change that would be to make it, uh, if not legally obligatory, then certainly a social norm hmm. that anybody after they're 18 uh, spends a year in, in national service so that afterwards, whether it's civilian or military, uh, it's the first uh, question on your college application if you're applying for college, or it's the first question when you're being interviewed for a job if you're going right into the workforce. Now, to do that, we're gonna have to create more service-year opportunities, and we're gonna have to find a way to fund it, but I think it's worth approaching.
6: I feel like that point, that point, and you discussing those, those difficulties with it, um, Sort of strikes me on that because this all—it's always really resonated with me. The civilian-military divide that you're talking about is something that I've been interested in a very long time. I wrote a book about it, Um, and it's something that I have struggled with because uh, the easy answer is that there should be a draft, Mm -hmm. Um, and the easy answer. Uh, that there should be a draft is easy and sounds like a great solution to everybody except the military who doesn't That's particularly true. want to deal with yep. a lot of conscripts who don't want to be there because right. it's a high, st- high skills, high tech environment um, voluntary of prof- voluntary service professionals. Um, But this idea of national service that's not necessarily a draft, I've heard so many smart people, left, right, and center, talk about that for the last 15 years. And I feel like it's this constant drawing board idea. And nobody ever, you know, somebody pilots a thing here or pilots a thing there. There doesn't seem to be any appetite for it at the federal level in terms of actually making it happen because it will involve some sort of level of raising expectations, if not creating a mandate for people. And we seem wired as a country to reject that at every level. I, I don't have faith that something like that ever gets off the drawing board.
8: Well, I think it's a bit like some of the democratic reforms we were talking about earlier. It's one of these ideas that everybody kind of likes, but it was always important and never urgent right? I mean, how would that ever kind of hold its own in a policy debate where we're dealing with uh, kids in cages and we got to deal with climate change and there are all these pressing, burning issues. But again, one of the things I'm trying to have us have a conversation about are what are the conditions that made this moment, this presidency possible? And one of them, I think, is a fraying in the social cohesion that we experience. And so some of that kind of stewardship, kind of housekeeping of our society, I think requires direct policy intervention that, to me, makes something like uh, what National Service could bring us uh, a little more urgent than we maybe have given it credit for. I get the obstacles, I get that it would be challenging, but if we made it more of a priority, I think we could establish that as a norm uh, by the time that my kids are going to college.
2: Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like it one bit. Because if you truly want to foster social cohesion, I think there are better ways to do it than to require us Or legally compel us to do something. Now, to be fair to him, he doesn't necessarily say that he would definitely make national service compulsory. He also floated the idea of just kind of promoting it, making it a social norm. But when you start getting in this territory, you make me very nervous because I don't want you to impede on my freedom. I don't want you to tell me that I am required to do something That I may not want to do. What if I want to go to college and go to medical school? I have to dedicate a year of my life to do something because you think that's what's going to help us be more socially cohesive? Fuck that. And think about the context that he was discussing how he bonded with other fellow Americans who he maybe ideologically disagreed with. They were in Afghanistan presumably killing people who pose no threat to us, killing people, occupying a different country because our government says that that's what we need to do. Now, to be fair again to him, he says that you don't necessarily just have to do this when it comes to war. There are other ways, you know, besides the military, but I am against being compelled to do something. I'm against compelling young Americans to do something because this really does get into territory that I feel uneasy with. Who are we to tell Americans who pay taxes that they have to do something as big as this? Like I believe that compulsory policies aren't inherently evil because I support compulsory voting, but for something like this, where you dedicate a year of your life, a year of your short life to this, it makes me feel uneasy because then we start talking about the draft, and that's what Rachel Maddow brought up. She says the easy answer about the civilian-military divide is that there should be a draft and it sounds like a great solution and everybody likes it except the military. What? Who likes the draft? If you look at public opinion polls, the last one that I could find is from 2003. 80% of the population are against the draft. 80%. And it's because we don't want to be forced by the government to fight in a war that we view as immoral. Or we don't want to be compelled to fight in a war that we know was launched on false pretenses. So, who's saying that we should support the draft? Now, to be clear, that's what Rachel Maddow says. She's not the candidate. What Pete Buttigieg proposed is mandatory national service. Now, if you look at public opinion polls for that, it is more popular. About half of Americans support it at 49%. But again, When you start getting into this territory where you're floating the idea of compulsory service, I feel uneasy about that. Because, I mean, if we're going to have the choice, that's great. If you want to join the military, that's great. Anyone who I know who joined the military, my cousin, my two brothers, they did it because joining the military gave them an opportunity They would get access to education, even though they didn't, you know, um, fulfill that. But still, it gave them access to different areas of the economy, education. It gave them access to healthcare, which all of them use. So, I believe that the choice is fine. If somebody wants to do that, that's fine. But don't compel us to do that. Now, he isn't necessarily dead set on saying you have to serve a year in the military. He's not proposing in my view something that looks like what israel does where they compel national service for men for 3 years and i believe women for a year and a half i want to say but i'm not too sure on that so don't quote me but it's it's weird look it's great that you had a really positive experience in the military and you can do whatever you want to encourage that socially i'm fine with that aspect but when you t- start talking about legally mandating it that's weird to me the fact that he was enthusiastic about going to war is weird to me. And I want to share this tweet from Kate Aronoff, who says, it'll never not be weird that Buttigieg joined the military in 2009 as a financially solvent adult after working at McKinsey. And the thing with the military is that a lot of people feel compelled to join the military because they view that as really the only way out of poverty to get them healthcare, to get them, you know, education without student loan debt. So, I don't, I don't get this and why he's choosing to make this something that is going to be presumably one of his biggest platform planks, maybe to separate himself from the rest of the field. Because if truly the goal is social cohesion, don't you think there are better ways to do that? Don't you think that simply by unrigging the economy so we don't have this ruthless capitalist system that makes people desperate, that leads them to be radicalized, Don't you think it's easier to encourage social cohesion if everyone has an equal standing in society, if black Americans aren't killed by the police? I mean, don't you think there are better ways to foster social cohesion? So I I just, I don't get why he's doing this. And again, to be fair, I've said this four times. I sound like a broken record, but people get really angry when I criticize Pete Buttigieg because I see a cult of personality forming that worries me. Because if I talk about policy specifics, people attack me. Like if you saw the video I put out, about Pete Buttigieg and you look at the comments, which you should never do, you should never look at YouTube comments, but if you go to the comments section and you sort by new, you will see people heavily suggesting that I am homophobic for criticizing Pete Buttigieg. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why is that notion ridiculous? I'm a homosexual myself. I'm not homophobic, I'm trying to criticize him based on the policy substance, but the reason why people are saying that is because they're not really looking at the policy, it's a cult of personality, so even if I present them with the evidence that Pete Buttigieg isn't as progressive as he says he is, or wants you to believe, well they still attack me, because there's this cult of personality forming around him where, no matter what we tell you, you... Don't want to hear what we're saying. You dismiss what we're saying. So that's why I feel as if I need to go out of my way to be extra kind to him and not straw man him because I wouldn't want myself or someone who I support like Tulsi or Bernie to be straw man. But here's the thing when you start talking about national service, you start worrying me because we get into the realm of making it mandatory. Um, we start talking about the draft as Rachel Maddow did. And that's something that I unequivocally am against because. The U.S. Empire has waged countless wars that are all to get natural resources from countries that didn't attack us. We're not fighting to protect national security. We're not droning Yemen because we're worried that, you know, there's going to be a Yemeni threat or a Yemeni invasion in America in the near future. We're doing it because we're trying to be the world's police. And I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to serve in a military that serves the military-industrial complex. Now, there are Americans who do that because, economically speaking, the military gives them that opportunity. And that's fine. I respect their decision to do that, but you're not going to force us to do it. You can go fuck yourself if you think... I'm going to be, uh, you know, forced to join the military. And I'm sure that that wouldn't apply to me since I'm in my early 30s. And this would presumably apply to people who are, you know, turning 18. But nonetheless, I don't want my nieces and nephews to be compelled to do something that they don't want to do. Give people the freedom of choice, improve what they're able to do economically speaking, give them more purchasing power. And that's how you increase social cohesion. You don't have to do this. You don't have to float the idea of national military service or national public service or a draft You just have to make sure that the economy is unrigged against us and then it seems like for the most part everything else will fall into place now you have to do other things you have to tackle white supremacy you have to make sure that black americans and women aren't second class citizens but these are the things that you should be looking at if you genuinely care about social cohesion not compulsory national service as many of you know, there was a piece of legislation in Congress that had bipartisan support and the individuals who led this effort, Rokana in the House, Bernie Sanders and Republican Senator from Utah, Mike Lee in the Senate, they managed to accomplish something that I was skeptical would happen. They got this bipartisan piece of legislation passed in the House and in the Senate. Now, whenever I hear the word bipartisan, I typically cringe because that usually means that both parties have teamed up to screw us over. But in this instance, they came up with a fantastic piece of legislation that even if it had some flaws, they came up with a piece of legislation that would save lives, potentially. It would end U.S. military support to Saudi Arabia. And this is important because Saudi Arabia currently is committing genocide in Yemen. They are doing literal war crimes and we are supplying them with the arms to commit these atrocities. So what this bill sought to do was cut off that support, say, look, we're no longer going to be complicit in the war crimes that you're committing. You don't get any more weapons. You don't get aid militarily. You don't get intelligence. You don't get anything from us if you're going to continue doing genocide. And since it passed, it got to Donald Trump's desk. Can you guess what he did? He chose to veto it. He vetoed it. This guy is scum. He vetoed it like the bitch that he is because as Tulsi Gabbard called it, he's Saudi Arabia's bitch. He wouldn't even stop the weapons deal that he agreed to to give to Saudi Arabia after it was proven that they murdered a journalist. And now he's saying, you know what, Saudi Arabia? Commit genocide. We'll still give you the bombs that you're going to be dropping on school buses in Yemen. I mean, I I don't know what to say about this. This is someone who campaigned as an anti-interventionist. And here he is, giving Saudi Arabia arms that they're using to kill innocent civilians what a disgusting morally reprehensible piece of shit he is to all of donald trump's supporters how do you reconcile this in your mind he campaigned as an anti-interventionist and those of us who were astute knew that he was full of shit because he was having secret closed-door meetings with defense contractors but nonetheless he still presented himself as a non-interventionist and He just said, we're going to intervene by being complicit, by remaining complicit in genocide. How do you reconcile this fact in your mind? Or does the cult of personality still stand? I mean, what boggles my mind is that usually if there's a cult of personality, it's around someone who's charismatic or charming or actually has something insightful to say. But you're supporting someone whose brain is melting away. Like, he's delusional. Like, I genuinely think that he's not mentally fit to serve. Because you just have to listen to the guy and he contradicts himself every five minutes. So the question is, how do you continue to support this war criminal? How do you continue to support someone who is Saudi Arabia's fucking little bitch? How do you continue to support that? It's insane. He just went back on one of his most crucial campaign promises to do non-intervention. He said, you know, our leaders are stupid. But because this idiot doesn't have a brain, because he surrounds himself with neocons like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, he just goes along with whatever they say, like a little bitch puppet that he is, and now he vetoed a bill that would have saved lives, potentially. Now, it's not that surprising, to be honest, but there was a glimmer of hope that since, you know, because this was bipartisan, maybe it would pass, but I started to lose hope when Mike Pompeo started to freak out about this vote when, you know, it was clear that Donald Trump would never do anything to jeopardize the United States' relationship with Saudi Arabia. So they can officially do anything. They could kill journalists. They can do genocide. Donald Trump will be A-OK with it. How disgusting is that? I mean, it's just, it's gross. We have no morals. And yet this dipshit cries at the top of his fucking lungs, about human rights in Venezuela. Get the fuck out of here. You don't give a fuck about Venezuelan human rights. You don't care about human rights at all. Because you're complicit now in genocide. You're going to have that blood on your hands, Donald Trump, for the rest of your life. And you are directly culpable now. Personally so. So this war criminal needs to be tried at the Hague when he gets out. So as of today, the 400 plus page Mueller report has been released, although Attorney General William Barr has left large portions of it redacted. And when I say he's left large portions of it redacted, I mean, there are literally pages that are fully blacked out because the information would supposedly cause harm to an ongoing manner. I don't really buy it, And I think it's really comical, but with that being said, even in spite of all of the redactions, there is still information in this report that we can extract out that I think is really important and, for the most part, devastating to Donald Trump. Because, as we initially were told, this doesn't fully exonerate Donald Trump, and that's certainly the case based on what we know about it thus far, um, based on what articles have been written and what I've read, but this actually includes information that could potentially be devastating. How devastating? That's an open question because there's an argument to be made that there's enough details in here that provides House Democrats with evidence that Trump on numerous occasions tried to obstruct justice that they actually could pursue impeachment because of this. So this is big. Now, I want to share a Vox article with you that highlights 10 instances where President Donald Trump potentially tried to obstruct justice. This includes... Asking James Comey to let Michael Flynn go. Trump's reaction to the Russia investigation, primarily his anger that Jeff Sessions recused himself, the firing of James Comey, obviously, Mueller's appointment and efforts to oust him, efforts to curtail the Russia investigation, attempts to stop the public from seeing the evidence, Trump trying to get Jeff Sessions to take back control of the investigation, Trump telling Don McGahn to deny that the president had wanted the special counsel removed. team asking Flynn for a, quote, heads up on information and commending Paul Manafort for not, quote, flipping the president's changing behavior towards Michael Cohen, particularly Trump's team coaching him to, quote, stay on message. So these are all, I think, evidence of criminality. Now, whether or not this legally would prove that Donald Trump is guilty, that's an open question. But do Democrats in the House have enough in this report to pursue impeachment? I think the answer is yes, and Mehdi Hassan of The Intercept makes a pretty strong argument as to why that's the case. This is his message to Democrats, quote, you have access to the report itself, and even the lightly redacted 448 pages provide you with a clear and detailed roadmap for impeaching Donald Trump in line with Article 2, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Listen to special counsel Robert Mueller. With respect to whether the president can be found to have obstructed justice by exercising his powers under Article 2 of the Constitution, we concluded that Congress has authority to prohibit a president's corrupt use of his authority in order to protect the integrity of the administration of justice, he writes, adding the conclusion that Congress may apply the obstruction laws to the president's corrupt exercise of the powers of office accords with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. Got that? The special counsel, who listed 10 instances of potential obstruction of justice in his report and refused to, quote, exonerate the president, placed the decision firmly in your court. This is the impeachment referral you claimed you were waiting for. Trump, in Mueller's view, may not have committed an underlying crime in relation to Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, but this is frankly irrelevant to the case for impeachment. So, basically, to reiterate the point that Mehdi Hassan is making here, just because there's no collusion does not mean that there was no obstruction. And in fact, a key takeaway, which I think is probably the most important takeaway from this report thus far, reads, quote, If we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state, based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. So, that's really big. So, just as a matter of the legality and whether or not House Democrats can pursue impeachment, can they do that? Absolutely. I think that they have more than enough In this Mueller report, which kind of gives you an indication as to why, you know, Trump and uh, you know, Republicans were trying to delay the release of this report and even potentially block it. It's because it is damaging to the president. I was not expecting collusion, I expected something, and I kind of feel vindicated now because this does prove that there's something there. It wasn't like there was no there there. This investigation in and of itself was important. And I think even most Russiagate skeptics admitted, myself, Kyle Kolinsky, we admitted that this was important because, obviously, Donald Trump, I mean, if you want to find something on him, you just have to look because he's a corrupt businessman. He acquired his wealth by committing a tax scheme that allowed his father hide away money so it wouldn't be taxed when he passed it on to his kids so donald trump is a career criminal and i'm really not surprised now let me just pose this question here in the event we weren't talking about donald trump and robert Mueller was investigating some random joe is it likely that this would have been enough here to indict him and put him away it's very possible because, let me remind you, we live in a 2 tier justice system where wealthy, powerful people like the president are able to get away with crimes. But a normal individual, if there were this many instances of potentially obstructing justice, would that normal peasant get away with it? Unquestionably not. Now, there are separate questions um, that people tend to bring up when we're talking about the prospect of impeachment. Should Democrats pursue this politically? Is this something that would serve them strategically? And whether or not it behooves them to pursue impeachment, the question as to whether or not they have a case, I think it's been answered here. They absolutely do. And I've always remained firmly in the camp that even if Politically speaking, it may not necessarily be the best decision to try to impeach Donald Trump because I think this will kind of create this rally around Trump effect, kind of like a spin on the rally around the flag effect, and it will get his base ramped up. But with that being said, I think that it seems immoral to not pursue him just because of the political ramifications that may or may not come to fruition. I think that if you commit a crime, like every other American, you should be tried. So, that's my take on it. And based on that, I think that impeachment is something that Democrats should pursue. But Nancy Pelosi has stated before, not really going to be on the table. So, do I think this will lead anywhere? Probably not. But with that being said, um, I think it's important that the American people know what happened here. There are numerous instances where Donald Trump potentially obstructed justice. And I say potentially, even if I'm convinced that he did, because we don't know if that is legally provable. So that's why there's the potential there. But for the most part, we know what he was trying to do. You don't have to, you know, be extra charitable here. He wanted to shut down this investigation. Um, So I'll leave that there. One last thing I want to share Something on page 290 that I found um, really interesting. Quote, When Sessions told the president that a special counsel had been appointed, the president slumped back in his chair and said, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked. The president became angry and lambasted the attorney general for his decision to recuse from the investigation, stating, How could you let this happen, Jeff? This is the worst thing... That ever happened to me, damn. So now we know why Donald Trump, you know, tried to shut down the Mueller investigation. Do I think he was worried about collusion? No, because as I predicted, there was no collusion. But um, the firing of James Comey. If I did what Trump did, I would be shitting my pants. Uh, The corrupt business dealings that we know he has, the conflicts of interest that his businesses pose, I'd be shitting my pants if I were him. So, um, seems like he was at least smart enough to realize the gravity of the situation there. Um, And after he just vetoed the bill that would withdraw U.S. support to to Saudi's military incursion, in Yemen, which I think is tantamount to literal genocide, it makes me feel a little bit happy to see him or to hear that he was worrying here. I don't take pleasure in human suffering, even mental distress, but this is someone who's a monster. Donald Trump is a morally reprehensible human being, and really, I don't think he has any morals. I just think that he is an amoral individual who's purely driven by self-interest. I mean, we're all driven by self-interest as human beings, but We also have other considerations. We have morality. We have the potential impact of our actions on others. I genuinely believe that Donald Trump doesn't have that. He may literally be a sociopath. So, that's basically, I think, the crux so far of what we found. But again, this is a very, very long report, and I expect to see more little tidbits pop up, Um, but I'm excited to kind of dig in and read a little bit more here because— this is fascinating to me, um, and I hope that other people will take the time to read the direct report and not just other second-hand analyses, but with that being said, we all have lives, 449 pages, Jesus Christ, that's a lot. So, um, this really is a bombshell, it's devastating to Trump in my view, and yeah, whether or not Democrats want to do anything, the ball's in their court, it's just a matter of if they want to act. We'll see. So as you all know, Brett Baer hosted a town hall with Bernie Sanders, but a couple of days later, he hosted, I guess you can call it a mini town hall, if you will, with Tulsi Gabbard, although it's not technically a town hall if nobody is there from the audience asking questions. But for the most part, he spent 12 minutes talking to Tulsi Gabbard and I think that this demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that Tulsi Gabbard is a phenomenal interviewer because her and Bernie Sanders do the exact same thing that I want progressives to do. They stay so married to the policy substance that you can't really get them to pivot away from that. So anytime they're asked bullshit questions, they'll either answer it quickly or brush it off and then move on straight to the policy substance. And Tulsi Gabbard did that. And I think that, you know, as I see her on all of these mainstream news programs, be it Colbert or The View, she keeps staying glued to the policy. I want to extract out this one portion from this interview where it's very clear that Brett Bayer is trying to goad her into attacking Bernie Sanders, but she doesn't take the bait. And she does what progressives do best she pivoted to the policy substance. Take a look.
4: All right, I wanna turn to politics. You're in a race where there could be more than 20 other candidates. In 2016, you endorsed wholeheartedly Bernie Sanders. Why are you running against him now?
11: I'm not running against him or anyone else. I'm running to serve the American people to serve them as president and commander in chief, bringing the experience that I have, serving for 16 years now in the Army National Guard as a soldier, deploying twice to the Middle East, serving in Congress for over six years on the armed services and foreign affairs committees, bringing this experience to this most important job that the president has as commander in chief and change the priorities in our country to bring about an end to these regime change wars, this new cold war that we are in with ever escalating tensions between the United States and other nuclear armed countries like Russia and China and this nuclear arms race and bring the trillions of dollars that we're spending on these wars and these weapons and bring it back into the pockets of the american people bring yeah. it back to invest in serving the very real needs that we have in this country
4: you know in the twenty sixteen dnc convention you said that bernie was the voice for millions and that you were truly honored to endorse him so what happened between then and now
11: once again i announced my candidacy long before bernie sanders announced his run i am not running against him or any other candidate in this country i am running for the american people sure but you say that you're better than him to serve the american people serving the american people as president and commander-in-chief and the unique experiences that i just outlined are what
2: okay. i bring to the forefront and make me best qualified to serve as commander-in-chief so two times he basically tried to get her to If not attack, Bernie, just say something critical of him as to why she's better because there's this underlying implication that if you're running against someone, then obviously you think that you're better than them. But I actually reject that notion because just because you're running against someone that doesn't necessarily imply that you think you're better than them. So I think that this competition between progressives running in 2016, it actually is healthy. I am worried to a degree about progressives splitting the vote, but at the end of the day, if you ask me, do I think Tulsi Gabbard should step aside for Bernie Sanders since she endorsed him in 2016? Hell no. Because I don't like this idea and I I unequivocally reject this idea that people who were Bernie's allies should step aside for him. Because, we'd be doing the same thing that we accused Hillary Clinton allies of doing. Nobody wanted to challenge Hillary Clinton in 2016. Nobody was brave enough in the establishment. People who clearly wanted to run for president, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, but they didn't. So the difference with progressives is that we actually encourage competition. We encourage democracy. And I absolutely don't think Tulsi Gabbard should step aside Um and again, I don't want to straw man Brett Baer because I don't necessarily think that that's what he was trying to overtly communicate to people, but certainly there is this underlying thing that maybe he's trying to draw out of you, and even if it's subconscious, I think it's harmful. I think that Tulsi Gabbard running for president, even if overall I support Bernie Sanders more, it really is important because I really do see both of these individuals, Bernie and Tulsi, on the same ticket. I really do see that being a very um, high probability. And this is why I'm glad that Tulsi, Bernie, and Warren, among themselves, they're keeping it civilized because there is a very real prospect of these individuals collaborating. Now, what's great is that Bernie and Tulsi, even if they are not perfect, they both have weaknesses— that are kind of fixed by the other person's strengths so for example they're both great on Medicare for all Bernie Sanders is better because he does say we should get rid of private health insurance but Tulsi Gabbard is still good and she's one of two people that have not backtracked and said well you know I support a path to Medicare for all such as a public option but with that being said on Venezuela Bernie Sanders just has not been as strong on this as Tulsi Gabbard. You've got to give her credit where it's due. Julian Assange, Tulsi Gabbard has been stronger here. But then again, when it comes to universal programs in America and redistributive policies, Bernie talks about it more. Tulsi does not. So do you kind of see what I'm getting at? Where one is weak, the other kind of fills in that gap and they make almost this perfect duo. And what I do like about Tulsi Gabbard, which really makes me feel as if she'd be a phenomenal VP choice, is that she has so much political courage she does not care about the political ramifications she doesn't care if doing something poses a threat to her career she's trying to do things that she thinks will help the country so if she wins the nomination or bernie wins the nomination or elizabeth warren wins the nomination i think there's a very real likelihood that we're going to see a collaboration between two of these three progressives and this is why I don't think that they should attack each other. Um, and really, I don't think you should be overly aggressive in general, but um, if Bernie's going to get attacked, if Tulsi's going to get attacked, then I think it's reasonable to assume that they should counterpunch. Now, with that being said, I want to go to one more clip here um, where Brett Bayer asks her, I think, a pretty reasonable question about the DNC and seeing that she resigned in 2016. Um, I think she has a very valuable take on this.
4: Last thing, are you satisfied with the new leadership of the DNC? Last time you quit the race because you said the DNC was putting the finger on the scale against Bernie Sanders specifically, but are you convinced that someone like you can operate in this DNC environment?
11: Uh, well, two, two things. To be clear, I, I stepped down as vice chair of the DNC at that time in 2016 because I saw some very stark differences between the two major candidates in that race at that time. Secretary Clinton, who had a very hawkish interventionist foreign policy, and Bernie Sanders, who was largely the opposite of that, a more non-interventionist foreign like you. policy. And as a veteran and, and someone who has seen the cost of war, I felt it was important to be able to step down and make that endorsement to be able to bring these issues to the forefront. Obviously, now there's been a lot that we have learned about what went on in the DNC at that time. I think there's a lot more transparency and some important changes that have been made. But there are many of us who are going to continue to keep watching to make sure that this process is fair uh, and transparent and that the wishes of the voters are what
2: are carried through and will decide this election. So once again, she immediately pivoted to the policy substance. Her and Bernie, they're just cut from the same cloth. um, And they'd make a fantastic team. Now, the question is, where does Elizabeth Warren stand? Because to me, I feel like the two people that stand out the most in my mind are Bernie and Tulsi. However, I honestly feel like Elizabeth Warren has been doing phenomenal at proposing very important policies that really would reshape America's economy, make it more equitable. The problem is Medicare for All. She's so strong on pretty much everything, with the exception of Medicare for All. Everyone notices that she's walking away from Medicare for All. And, you know, for me, I've been very clear, Medicare for All, if you don't support it, that's a deal breaker for me. So I... I like what elizabeth warren is doing um she's proposing a lot of very bold ambitious policies but the medicare for all thing is so frustrating and she really is at the opposite end of the spectrum when you compare her to tulsi gabbard tulsi gabbard has 100 you know um political courage That attribute is maxed out. She went to Standing Rock. She endorsed Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren did not go to Standing Rock. She did not endorse Bernie Sanders. So she has great ideas, but I don't know that she has the political courage necessary to get anything accomplished. Whereas Tulsi Gabbard, I feel like she would get in there and calmly crack skulls if she needs to. She would be a phenomenal attack dog for Bernie and vice versa. So more and more as we see these candidates... I'm leaning more towards a tulsi Bernie ticket with Bernie at the top of that ticket and Tulsi as VP. But at the same time, I would be okay with Warren, you know, replacing one of those two individuals. But I do think that Bernie is still my number one bet. But I I think that really to bring it back to this clip here and the interview, Tulsi has the right idea. And I think that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are on the same page since they all met before the primary. And they agreed really, um... It seems like to keep it civil, which is intelligent because if you choose to work with someone in the future, if one of you win, you don't want to bring them down. Now, I think that as political commentators, we do have a duty to critique these candidates and draw out their weaknesses. And I think that this is especially important because constructive criticism can improve candidates. And with people like Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders, they do listen. So, I've never bit my tongue if I see something Bernie Sanders said or Tulsi Gabbard or Elizabeth Warren said that I disagreed with because these individuals actually listen to constructive criticism and feedback. So, I'll leave that there. Um, Great job by Tulsi Gabbard. She is really a charismatic speaker and I'm, I'm loving everything that she's saying lately. She's doing a phenomenal job. Hello, everyone. I have a very special guest on The Humanist Report podcast, the very first presidential candidate that decided to come on The Humanist Report. I think you all know who this is by now. His name is Andrew Yang. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the program.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah. And I've got to say this, you have been very attentive to the importance of going on indie media news shows so you get extra credit for that because i think that it really is important for you to come on these shows that are smaller because you really do get to talk directly to the grassroots so um i admire that now out of all the 2020 candidates i think you probably have the most robust platform out of everyone but You are basically known as the UBI guy. When we think Andrew Yang, we think about universal basic income, and I do want to talk to you about that. However, I actually want to start with some different policy positions that we haven't necessarily heard as much from you on. So the first one is, when you go to your website, there are three key policy planks. So the first one, of course, is UBI. The second is Medicare for All, and the other is human-centered capitalism, which I guess is more of a philosophy, but I still think that that's pretty helpful because it kind of gives us a sense of what you believe. Now, going to Medicare for All, when I click on Medicare for All, what you seem to be describing is more of a public option. And at the CNN town hall you did, somebody asked you about healthcare, and you said that you're firmly in the camp of Medicare for All slash public option. But my question to you is, these are two very different programs. So which one is it? Which do you actually want to implement as president?
0: Yeah. So if I understand first, let me say I love podcasts. I love independent media. And uh, you all gave me my chance, really, because when I was running in 2018, uh, certainly no cable news outlet wanted to have Andrew Yang on. (laughs) And now now they can't get enough of me. Um, But, uh, you know, I I think that these conversations are a much better way to introduce yourself to voters um, than a cable news appearance that consists of rapid fire <laughs> you know, six to absolutely eight, eight, eight you minutes. can't get
2: really nuanced discussions about the policy details on mainstream news so i think this is a great way to do that
0: yeah and the format is uh is much better i prefer it on several levels yeah. and you know love the work that you personally do i mean i you know when i saw your um array of policy positions um i was like wow uh i agree with virtually all of these uh and i supported bernie last time um, as well. Uh, so to, it, it seems like you, you were asking about Medicare for all versus like single payer was the sense that, that I'm getting from your question.
2: Well, I'm asking, well, I'm asking if, you support, if you support, um, support. single payer versus public options. Sorry. I was kind of <coughs> getting a little bit of an echo. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that, that's what I thought. And, you know, it was really interesting because in my book, um, you know, it's like, uh, I was, uh, a little bit um, ambiguous in terms of those two things as well. But I, I've come to believe that uh, that a public option would be uh, better and also would enable a better transition. Um, and the goal is to make it, frankly, such that most private insurance has no place in the market and, uh, and that you get rid of it. Um, with the save for perhaps a few super gold-plated concierge things that might not be a bad thing for the American people because if some really rich people are spending lots of money on esoteric (laughs) treatments, um, then we can benefit from that research uh, and the money. Uh, So at this point, the plan that I saw that I've now gotten on board with um, has been bringing down the Medicare uh, eligibility age over time as a phased rollout And then make it so that all Americans become eligible for that, uh, try and get the prices down and the access up, and then essentially squeeze out the private insurers out of the marketplace uh, and demonstrate. Because, you know, most consumers, if you tell me, hey, I've got this low cost quality public option, um, I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to jump on that. Um, And you can make that happen, I think, uh, much more expediently than if you were to make – uh, private insurance illegal
2: uh so you actually do want to make public insurance illegal that's that's the long term goal
0: i want to make it so that private insurance is irrelevant for uh you know 95% plus of americans that we're all perfectly happy showing up uh to our medical uh healthcare provider and saying hey you know i'm andrew i'm here i've got the plan everyone has
5: <laughs> and right
0: then, and then and and my parents actually have experienced this. They were blown away. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan and they've been living in Taiwan for the last number of years. And they've been blown away by the disparities between that healthcare system where they just show up, they get what they need done, they pay twenty bucks out of pocket, and then they go home and are like, That was it? Like I didn't have any yeah. crazy forms or like third party and then none of that. And they come back to the US and then all of a sudden it's back into the the maze, <laughs> the, the high cost maze.
2: Right. Uh, Okay, so let me ask you this. Since your goal is to make private health insurance companies irrelevant, even though it's obvious that if you do have a public option, they'd be forced to compete. And a lot of people would probably opt for the government run plan because it would be more cost efficient, it would provide more robust benefits. But if your goal ultimately is to do away with private insurance companies, why not just go the extra step? and opt for Medicare for all, especially if you become president, because this is what I'm visualizing. Let's say President Andrew Yang is proposing a new healthcare reform policy. If you start with public option, Republicans are going to negotiate you down from that initial position. So if your goal actually is public option, why not start with strength and say, we're going to do Medicare for all. And then if you get negotiated down to a public option, then you still come out on top. Why not opt for the more robust comprehensive plan because the real key difference here is medicare for all would make healthcare free at the point of service and if you want to actually do away with private insurance companies there's no better way to do that really than just implementing medicare for all full stop and so why do away not with companies. <laughs> exactly exactly so why not do that full stop
0: i i I like your negotiating approach. Uh, you I'm know, very, I, I think, very
2: much a purist on Medicare for all.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think anchoring them high is a very good uh, a good first step. Um, if you said right now, hey, Andrew, your choice is uh, is Medicare for all, single payer, get rid of private insurance, or our current plan, I would say oh, we should definitely go to <laughs> single, single payer like yesterday. Uh, you know, the, the question really is, Uh, what the path and what the transition looks like. Um, And I think that the transition would be marginally better if we weren't um, putting all these private insurance companies out of business on the same day.
2: (laughs) Well, to be clear, the (laughs) Medicare for all proposals in the House and Senate, they actually have a four year transition period. The Senate version has four years and the House version has two years. So it wouldn't necessarily be an overnight transition. Just to be, yeah, no,
0: or even phased out. I mean, that's, but they, they'd still theoretically all go out of business on the same day four years from now, <laughs> and, and, and so, um, so I'm not against your suggestion. Like, I, I think philosophically, you and I are aligned on the goal and the vision. I mean, the vision is in the richest, most advanced economy in the world. Why are we all going broke on our health care? Right. Why are these prices so ridiculous and opaque? Why are we more stressed out if we get sick or injured about paying for treatment than we are actually getting well or caring for our loved ones? Uh, And I'm for any path that gets us there. Um, If I believe that we can make single payer happen and that transition is superior, I'd be happy to start with that.
2: Well, and let me just make one last pitch for Medicare for all to you, not to uh, beat a dead horse. but. Currently, Medicare for All is polling at 70 plus percent among the general population, over 80 percent among Democrats, and 51 percent among Republicans. Now, when you poll them on a public option, it still is popular. But currently, Medicare for All has name recognition. And I think this is why you're seeing other presidential candidates. They're taking a public option and they're attaching that Medicare name for it. So, for example, Pete Buttigieg has Medicare for All Who wants it? Beto O'Rourke has Medicare for America, and you have Medicare for All. So I I think that there is that popularity that you can sell to the American public. So that's just one last thing that I'll say. So let me tell you this, as a Medicare for All purist, I hope that I... um We'll see a president yang push relentlessly for medicare for all because if you really want to do away with the health insurance companies there's no better way to do that than medicare for all but i do want to move on to another policy one thing that i wanted a clarification um, from you on was your stance on the minimum wage because i'm unclear if you are against the minimum wage full stop or if you simply are against an increase in the federal minimum wage
0: now i'm uh for the fundamental Premise that no one should be working anywhere close to full time and not being able to make ends meet or live a good life, even a good, what we'd consider a middle class life. Uh, and we're paying poverty wages in many, many jobs and circumstances around the country. Uh, and so you know that I'm for a uh, universal basic income of $1,000 a month, right. which would have the benefit of both being an effective raise of approximately $6 and change for people who are working close to full time and would also start to compensate parents and caregivers. And people who are doing work that right now the market values at zero, which is obviously wrong and, and, and uh, perverse. And I like to bring up my wife, who's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic, and how the market values her work at zero, uh, which is wrong. And a universal basic income would help with that. Um, so I'm not – so no one should be working and be poor. Um, and if we put a 1000 bucks a month into people's hands, it would be an effective raise that would give the, the majority of workers – uh, in this country, an effective minimum wage with the existing minimum wage plus a universal basic income of let's call it like 13 to 14 bucks uh, an hour in most locations. Uh, so I'm not for um, doing anything uh, with the minimum wage. If you ask me right now, in the absence of universal basic income, should we look to raise the minimum wage? I would agree with that. Hmm. Um, you know, and I think that a universal basic income is a more effective way to do this, in part because uh, there are some employers that are on like the margins, let's call it like a local hardware store that's like just trying to make ends meet because, you know, Amazon's like stealing their lunch. And then you say, Hey guys, it's 15 bucks an hour time and they're paying their employees like, you know, nine or 10 bucks. And then if you increase their costs, will they maybe cut shifts back for some of the people that work in that store? Will they, you know, maybe at the margins like get, so there's a marginal situations where, Uh, We'd be much better off just putting the money directly into the workers hands um, from the top down as just a matter of citizenship rather than saying to the business, hey, uh, hey, struggling hardware store, you know, pay that person more.
2: But don't Um, you think the same can be true about your universal basic income program? Because if a business owner is going to increase the prices, for example, if minimum wage goes up then wouldn't they also be inclined to decrease wages if they have universal basic income? Because if they don't necessarily have to pay, if they're not obligated by government to pay a minimum wage, then wouldn't they just pay their workers $1 an hour knowing that they get universal basic income? And this kind of goes into UBI and some of the questions I wanted to ask because what happens, hypothetically speaking, you become president and we actually get UBI codified into law. 30 years down the road uh, which would be right it'd be phenomenal for a lot of people but let's say 30 years down the road after having universal basic income the cost of living increases rent goes up inflation increases would we still be sitting at 1000 would we adjust that over time yes okay
0: it's adjusted to uh uh cpi like um or core inflation of various consumers um, so to your point, I would not be for, and most minimum wage laws are on the state books anyway. Um, so I would not be for certainly, uh, reducing existing minimum wage laws of anything. If there's a direction they should go, it's up, okay. um, but, but there, there's uh, but it'd be impossible to get anyone to work for one buck an hour anyway, because if you're getting a thousand dollars a month and I say, Hey, good news, I'm going to try and like pay, pay you eight bucks a day. Like no one would show up for that, 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 that job. Because the the great thing about the universal basic income is it actually makes it much harder to push around and exploit workers. Because right now you've got a worker who's literally like relying upon you just to make ends meet. Um, and then if uh, you didn't, you knew that you could make ends meet independent of the job. In some cases, the compensation might actually have to go up, not down, mm-hmm. because if, mm-hmm. if it's some job that people really detest, <laughs> that, that,
8: that,
2: right.
0: they'd be like, you know, what? Right. if you really want me to show up for this thing, you're going to have to pay a little bit. Uh, more because now I don't need the job to survive.
2: Right. OK, that that actually does make sense. It, it kind of gives workers more leverage, essentially, is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, it makes it harder to exploit us. Um, and this is true, particularly for women, for uh, people in the LGBTQ community who are more likely to be fired from jobs for their identity and be persecuted. Like it gives everyone more bargaining power and mobility, where there are hundreds of thousands of women, I'm sure, in this country right now, who are stuck in exploitative or abusive jobs, uh, because, you know, they need that like waitressing job to make ends meet for their kid. And then if their boss is a jerk and like harasses them, they just have to suck it up. You know, it's like, the you know, like, like there are all of these, um, uh, terrible re- like relationships and jobs right now that people feel stuck in because they feel like they don't have the uh, security to walk away.
2: Right. No. And and that's a great point. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about with regard to UBI was the structure of UBI, because as I initially understood it, which it seems incorrect, so correct me if I'm wrong, is that. It's a universal program however the caveat is that it's opt-in so to kind of tie this to a real world example so i can kind of get a better grasp of how it would work in reality my dad for example he receives social security insurance every single month of thirteen hundred dollars per month so with your proposal he would have to choose between ubi and social security insurance. So my question then becomes, if he has to pick between these, and obviously he's gonna opt for the $1,300 option because, you know, basic math its more money. It's higher. Then, exactly, <laughs> yeah. it's higher. So it makes more sense for him to do that. But effectively, he would not be getting an extra $1,000 because with my with my parents, they live paycheck to paycheck. They wait for that $1,300 check every single month. But if you increased them and supplemented what they already got, give them an extra thousand, that would radically change their lives. But they'd have to opt in to UBI and they wouldn't get that additionally. Meanwhile, someone who makes $100,000 per year who's firmly in the middle class, they'd get the extra $1,000. So even if I like that you're pitching this as a universal program, don't you think that that opt-in caveat kind of undermines the universality of it? Well,
0: um, uh, the $1,300 that your father receives, um, is that uh, for both... Uh, him and your mother, are they they both in the same household?
2: So I believe my father receives thirteen hundred and my mom gets four hundred or something along those lines.
0: Yeah. So so and this is not an uh, atypical situation, and it's why I ask, is that um for your parents uh your mom would also be entitled to the freedom dividend. And so she looks at her $400 and this is not unusual because a lot of women went years without developing work histories mm-hmm. often because they're raising kids and then their social security benefits are much lower. Um, and, and so your parents' net benefit would be $600 because your dad's like, Hey, I'm getting 1300. So passing the freedom dividend and your mom's like, Ooh, freedom dividend. All right? <laughs> right. And, and you know, and, and uh, the, the extra 600 would be really significant for a household on a fixed income. Um, and so it, it is true that certain people who are in existing programs might benefit a bit less, though, as you know, $600 on top of the $1,700 they are currently getting would be like a huge relief. I mean, sure. that would be, sure. you know, like maybe a thirty-three percent increase. So it, it might not sound like, ooh, six hundred bucks a month. Who cares? But that's actually like really significant if you're operating on a. It would be. 70- it would be
2: substantial. Yeah. But and and so technically, if you're looking at couples, then they would technically get two thousand per month. But that still begs the question: Why would someone, for example, on social security disability, have to choose? Why would they not get as much as someone? Who's making a hundred thousand per year? Do you kind of see so there's just a disconnect, and I'm hoping that you can fill me in on that if i if I'm genuinely misunderstanding
0: No, no, well, your understanding of it is correct um and the the so there there are some problems that the freedom dividend is well designed to solve um and then some that it is less well designed to solve honestly, like it's very well designed to help uh, empower millions of american uh workers and uh, people in in tough situations, it will make children and families stronger. It'll improve our health and nutrition, mental health, relationships. It'll make workers tough, tougher to exploit. Um, uh, does it do as much for someone who's already receiving um, Social Security and other benefits? Um, it does not do as much. For those households, and to me, that's like a separate problem that we have to tackle and solve, mm. which is that social security is supposed to go insolvent. I think it's 18 years or something. Um, and well, you know, to there be clear, are-
2: just so people know, it 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 actually rolls over. So, for example, it's scheduled to go insolvent in 2038, for example, but then next year it'll be scheduled to go insolvent in 2039, and then it just starts paying out 80% in the event it still isn't fully solvent. But I, I do agree with that there needs to be something. I think lifting the cap on Social Security is a really good solution. Is that something that you'd support?
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. Um, and and there so there's like an unrelated crisis. It's related, but unrelated. So we have... Tens of millions of aging Americans who do not have adequate retirement savings, right? Um, and you know, and we're we're about to be a society where you're seeing old people working until the day they die, and like you know, dying on the street and like living under bridges, all, all sorts of incredibly uh, horrific things. Where again, if we're the richest and most advanced society in the history of the world, like that's unacceptable, and we should make big moves to address that. Um, and the freedom dividend would help some of those situations uh, because it's very common like your parents where you have two people who are receiving together jointly less than two thousand um, dollars but uh, the freedom dividend is not actually designed um, to solve that problem as much as it's designed to solve like uh, other situations and problems do I agree that this retirement savings crisis and the uh, home health care crisis and all of these like need to to um, have massive, resources put to work. Yeah, 100%. Um, And if you were to say, hey, the Freedom Dividend does not address that as effectively as it addresses other situations, uh, I would uh, agree with that as well.
2: Okay, that's that's (laughs) certainly fair. And thank you for clarifying, because that is something that I wanted to kind of clear up some confusion, because initially, I assumed that UBI would supplement our existing social safety net programs. But what you're kind of pitching it as is something that is either or you can choose between, for example, food stamps, or ubi now let me ask you this because in a way you're i mean you're calling it the freedom dividend so that gives individuals hypothetically more freedom but here's what i worry about and i'm not saying that this is something that you're proposing but this is what i'm worried about post yang presidency we pass ubi you served two terms. You know, you, you've been president now. But we have a Republican administration, and what they tend to do is they pitch the idea of freedom, but oftentimes it's a Trojan horse to privatize social safety net programs. So let me give you an example. So Republicans often talk about oh, voucher programs. They do programs. like to do that. They, they talk <laughs> about voucher agree. voucher programs for healthcare, for education. Now, what is this in actuality? It's a ploy to privatize it because if you devalue the utility of these types of social safety net programs, what happens? You open the door to privatization because that undermines public support. And so here's what I worry about. If we get UBI and that kind of becomes the standard, it replaces food stamps for the most part. How can we, how can we protect what exists for you know the social safety net alongside UBI if people still opt for welfare instead of UBI simply because it benefits them more. Like, for example, my dad, it just benefits him to get, you know, the 1300 from Social Security. So how can we protect Social Security if it's devalued because of UBI? You know, th- this is
0: a very legitimate and important consideration. Uh, and one of the things that i said to to folks is that um, on the bright side, because people, pe- you know, uh, very understandably, it's like, look, Conservatives love to try and uh, like, you know, chop away at these programs and like might having the freedom dividend make it easier for them to do so. Um, and then there is the, a contrary point of view that um, that this freedom dividend uh, could itself become sort of like a tree trunk where you can't chop it because mm-hmm. everyone's getting it. And then you're like, OK, like, well, <laughs> well it's hard, sort of hard to to to, to attack it. Um, and the Alaska example is instructive where, you know, they've had it for um, almost 40 years and like it's so popular, like you can't touch it. Um, and, and so there, there is like a trade off. Um, first as you, I think, can tell, um, I would be the last person who wants to take away social programs from anyone. And certainly, like, you're right mm-hmm. that it's possible that the president after me is then like, ooh, like, let me see if I can, you know,
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> like, because uh, uh, I mean, you like, can't <laughs> be president forever. So that's what I'm worried about is future administrations.
0: Yeah, it's a legitimate concern. Um, You know, the the thing that I'd suggested to people is that you have to take a look at our current situation, which is that I'm not sure how uh, hatchet proof our existing programs are right now. Like the the conservatives are already successfully pulled back benefits in various (laughs) in various states and various environments. That's true. Um, and, and so it's not like right now, in the absence of the freedom de- dividend, these programs are bulletproof. A lot of people are actually very concerned about these programs' future. Uh, and and the, the fear I have, if you look into you know what I think is coming with this wave of automation, is that the thing that's driving the hatcheting away of various welfare programs is this mindset of scarcity that is predominant. And unfortunately, it's getting higher and stronger as financial insecurity uh, sweeps the country, more or less. Where then if you have people who are struggling themselves economically, it's easier for conservative leaders to look at them and say, hey guys, what's that? Yeah, we don't have enough money to go around. You know what we have to do? We have to get rid of these welfare programs for the people. Yeah. And then the people who are yeah. in scarcity are like, yeah, that's right, that's why like things aren't good, is because we're wasting money on these like other people. Uh, and And that mindset is getting stronger and deeper and nastier all the time because we're pushing more and more Americans and communities into economic distress. Right. So in the freedom right. dividend world where people don't feel like their very future and their, their kids futures are like in question. And then, you know, you get the economic boot off of people's throat. Um, and they have a, a greater sense of abundance and future orientation, and maybe even like, you know, lower stress levels, then it's going to be harder to gin them up to attack and hatchet Uh, welfare programs because if you go and say hey these people are getting this stuff then they'll be like who cares you know like Mm -hmm. my life is fine my kids are fine I'm getting stuff They're getting some more stuff. Like, maybe that's fine, too. Maybe they need it. Maybe, you know, their circumstances are different than mine.
2: (laughs) If you have because this is what I this is what concerns me the most. And And I'm supportive of UBI, to be clear. So if you are also kind of concerned with the same thing of future administrations getting in and, you know, using UBI to pitch cutting other social safety net programs, why not redesign your current UBI proposal to make it supplement existing social safety net programs? Because I think that that would make. Everything, uh, all of these problems that I'm, I'm bringing up kind of go away because if it truly is universal, everybody gets it. Nobody's going to want to get rid of in Congress is going to want to get rid of UBI if it's so popular. And additionally, if it supplements our existing social safety net programs, then they can no longer use UBI. Republicans can no longer say, well, you have UBI, so you don't need food, need food stamps. Let's cut that. So why not supplement what already exists? Why make it either or?
0: You know, I I think part of it is that the way that the freedom dividend is positioned is that we're saying the right of citizenship now as an American is that you should be getting a floor of a thousand dollars a month um, and that principle then, um, I believe, can make it very, very popular uh, very quickly. Um, and so th- if if that's the principle. Then you go to someone and say, hey, you know, you may already be receiving benefits of a certain kind. We're guaranteeing you a floor of $1,000 a month, as a matter what your situation is. Um, and so, like, in an ideal world, like, if you gave me, again, a choice, it's like, hey, pass UBI on top of the existing social safety nets, like, you know, I would, I would take that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I believe that it's going to be more uh, achievable uh, – and again we'd be talking about the alleviation of um gross poverty uh in our time um if we have it as like a blanket floor across the board um so but it but you you know like the question is a really interesting one mm-hmm. um like the the way that i've uh, the way that i understood even the original basic income proposals it was around this universal floor for everyone and that's the uh, the approach that we've chosen
2: Okay, that makes sense. Um, Okay, so I kind of want to move on. I want to get to some of your other policy proposals because you have really interesting and I think innovative ideas that nobody else is talking about. So you're proposing ranked choice voting, publicly financed elections a constitutional amendment to overturn citizens united one i really love lowering the voting age to 16. love it um you want to legalize marijuana you want net neutrality so these are all phenomenal proposals however there's one thing that makes me a little bit skeptical and this is your provision to sunset all laws so if you pass all of those really phenomenal ideas then they'll automatically be sunsetted so even if you pass ubi you also have another proposal that sunsets it. So in 10 years, when the date comes up for it to be renewed, I mean, Republicans, they're not going to want to renew that. They didn't renew the Children's Health Insurance Program. So does this mean that you support all laws expiring? I mean, the Civil Rights Act, uh, Social Security Act. Tell me more about that sunset provision, because that's the one thing that gives me pause, because you have great policies, and I don't want them undermined by an automatic sunset clause.
0: Oh, yeah. And and the sunset clause um, is really designed to just force our legislature to actually grapple with the laws that are on the books, because um, right now. So it's not like, you know, to your point, it's certainly we can't have a society where like every law then gets called into question. So it's specific. Um, and laws the way, yes. And I know okay. the, the way that, the, that it reads, it does suggest that we're like constantly um, reexamining. Uh, in a way, it's more of like a, like a, trying to take an inventory of what's on the books now because we have um, – I believe it's tens of thousands of uh, rules and regulations that at this point, if you were to go to anyone on Capitol Hill, like no one knows what's going on.
11: <laughs>
0: yeah, get <laughs> like, like this Because <laughs> a lot of these things have been, been passed like years ago and it's like no one's job really. Um, and so – you know, we were trying to come up with an effective way just to get people to re-examine what's on the books and then see like, hey, does this still make sense in 2019 or 2020? Um, it is true that uh, if you were to apply it to everything, it would become unmanageable. And so the, the point was really just to say, look, we need to actually reevaluate um, the laws that have been on the books for a certain period of time.
2: Okay. Um, do you have like an example of like a specific set of laws that this would be applicable to? Like would it involve um tax law or city i mean you can't really do city codes at the federal level, but can you just give me some examples as to what you're specifically intending to sunset if it's not technically everything
0: thank you and it's a it's a great question uh so when I was with some farmers in Iowa, they were talking about various arcane uh federal regulations that apply to the the way that their um uh crops are set up or that the the way that there's like a uh, you know, when one of them said to me, it's like, look, the fact is, if you came and, and came to my farm, you could find a half dozen violations any anytime you want, <laughs> because like because they're like he said that there are so many different rules that even if you were to try his best, uh, that, you know, he'd be found in violation of a half dozen any moment in time. Um, and some of the ones he cited to me seemed like, uh, you know, like like they were more rules for rules sake than that. They were actually going to make his crops. Um, Any safer or healthier. Um, so it, it was like uh, like that was one example that um, hit my radar when I was in Iowa. Um, there have been other uh, uh, other um, like small businesses and proprietors who've said it's like look, you know uh, the fact is that uh, like I'm probably not keeping track of a lot of the rules that that I'm I'm um, accountable to, and I think that's really unhealthy for a society when you have. Tr- People are trying to be responsible. Who you know, if you give them rules, they'll try and follow them. But at this point, our rules are are so dense um, because we pass them and then we never unpass them, and then we just make new ones. And at some point, actually, that ends up eroding the importance and efficacy like, of the laws. I, I was influenced by by um, uh, an author, Philip Howard, who is a little bit more on the conservative end of the spectrum. Uh, but he calls it like the rule of nobody, <laughs> where mm-hmm. at this point no one knows like what to do or what's in charge. And there's like this rule book, like a, you know, a phone book thick um, that, 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 right. that, that could be, that can be brandished on you. And like, we all live in fear of the phone book rule book. <laughs> sure, so, no, it, so that's
2: yeah. Well, let me, let me say this though. Um, In the event you are a farmer and you're saying, look, President Yang, I have all of these regulations that I don't want to follow. How do you determine what actually is or is not legitimate? Because, for example, President Trump last year, he postponed water testing rules, and then we saw the direct result of what happened. We had a nationwide E. coli outbreak and it was because of dirty water, because of the loosening of regulations. So how do you determine what concerns are legitimate and which ones are illegitimate? Like, are you going to set a a type of commission of experts? Like, how do we determine, you know, whose concerns are actually valid and how many people just want to skirt regulations to save a buck or two?
0: Yeah, and and another excellent question. Uh, You know, one of the things that made me sad is how the uh, Republicans got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment in 1995, um, where they used to have an office to advise Congress on tech regulation, and they said, we're wasting money on this thing, so they got rid of it. Um, And so that's exactly the kind of thing we need more of, not less of, where you actually have uh, uh, experts that are not subject to industry money or lobbying, uh, and then just they they can come and say, look, you know what would actually make our water safer and cleaner? or are crops um, safer for our people? It's like these things and these things more marginal. Um, And so uh, your bilateral commission is exactly the kind of thing that we would want, taking a look at some of the regs. Um, uh, The OTA, which doesn't exist, but hopefully the Democrats are gonna succeed in bringing it back, um, is exactly the kind of third-party objective advisory body that you would want to try and come in and take a look at uh, what's on the books. Um, And certainly I'd be the opposite of the guy who's like, hey, um, let's like ignore the water regs for a particular period of time. When I was in Ohio, um, someone just said to me offhandedly that their cancer rate is several times the national average because in that particular area, northeast Ohio, because uh, of the drinking water and that what we think of as the Flint water crisis is actually endemic to dozens of communities around the country. Um, and that, I mean, I don't know if people listening to this or watching this are shocked by that. Um, I think I knew that. Um, but then to actually be with someone who just offhandedly like knew that their cancer risk was going to be like several times the national average, that still struck me as very jarring that they just sort of accept that risk every day. So certainly anything that actually hues to public safety, it's possible that we should be doing more of not less. Um, like my, my, uh, ask of the legislature to evaluate laws is certainly not like an anti public protection, it's more like an efficiency and uh, legislative accountability measure.
2: Okay, and and that okay. um, that makes sense. So the website is yang2020.com. I know you've got a split. So let me give you the floor now to kind of just make your pitch to my viewers as to why they should support you how they can get involved. And basically, um, anything you want to say?
0: Well, thank you so much. First, I just want to appreciate you and the work that you do. You're such like a voice of clarity and reason.
2: Thank you. Um, that
0: means a lot. And uh, No, and, and the, the fact that uh, that you were such a champion of Bernie and then now the cause, it really is the revolution that Bernie started, uh, you know, and certainly, um, I'm very much aligned with uh, Bernie Sanders on many, many of the goals uh, that, that he's put out that have helped move our country in the right direction. Uh, I'm thrilled that you went through and dug up all the policies on the website. And I feel like some of them you feel like probably came out of your own brain. I felt that way when I was looking at your policy uh, proposals where I was like, ooh, like, you know, I feel like uh, you and I have had uh, the, the same um, ideas about where society should go for quite some time. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The, the main thing that I think I, dif- I differ with um, from Senator Sanders really is that is really the solutions and the path forward. Um, and uh, to me, the single most direct and concrete way we can improve our own lives and the lives of our fellow citizens is just to put cash in our hands. Uh, you know and and if the a lot of the things that we're talking about um, on the democratic side are kind of uh, circuitous ways to get there. It's like, how can I somehow get money into people's hands? Like I'm going to um, reduce the cost of education, which I'm for. Um, I want to, you know, I want to try and get healthcare off of people's backs, which I'm for. Um, But the fact is, our economy now is evolving in ways that's going to become more and more punitive and inhuman uh, for more and more Americans. And those trends are accelerating. Um, One of the things that does set me apart from other candidates is the fact that I've spent time in technology and I know just how transformative AI is going to be. I mean, there are two and a half million call center workers in the United States right now and AI is gonna get rid of a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Driving a truck is the most common job in 29 states, and AI is gonna get rid of a lot of them. You don't really think of AI as self-driving trucks, but that's what it is, (laughs) it's AI. Um, So, we're already falling apart. Our life expectancy has declined for the last three years because of suicides and drug overdoses. Uh, We have a mental health crisis in this country. Um, We are heading in a very dangerous, desperate direction, and that's why Donald Trump's our president today. And the trends that are driving that are unfortunately about to pick up steam like this is a time for very is time for very dramatic response and action. Uh, And that's what drove me to run for president. As you can tell, I'm not a career politician. I'm not someone who ever sat, you know, sat awake at night being like, ooh, like I'd love to be president,
7: (laughs) (laughs) which is refreshing, by the way.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um. And I'm on the record saying if someone else were to take all of these policy proposals and champion them and get them across the finish line, uh, and it's not me, that would be great. <laughs> that would be like, I mean, I'm ready to be president. I think I'd uh, be an excellent one. But the goal here is just to solve the problems of the American people.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and the best way we can solve the problems of the American people in a in in the time frame we need to is just put a thousand bucks a month into our hands, and then that would more directly solve a lot of the problems we're talking about than anything else we can do. Um, so that's the main thing that I think that differentiates me from some of the other people that are gonna be on this program. I think we're very aligned in terms of our vision and values and goals for our society. We just have different approaches to get there. Um, I believe that some of my approaches are going to be um, more modern and effective, uh, but you know, that's for the American people to decide. I'm just grateful for this opportunity to be able to introduce myself to more, more Americans.
2: Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. I hope that we can do this again. Um, And hey, good luck. I think that you are a really fascinating candidate. And unlike pretty much every other person, I get why you're running like you have a specific reason why you're running. A lot of other people, they don't really seem to be pushing for policies. But when I look at your platform, it's it's beautiful. It's art. So uh, thank you for actually having policies and not just platitudes. And thank you for coming on the program. It's been absolutely a blast. Um, And I think this has been really helpful.
0: Well, uh, me too. And hopefully we'll have a chance to meet in person soon. Definitely. Um, I really, congrats on the work you do. And, um, you you know, I'm very, very happy to come back anytime.
2: All right. Sounds good. Andrew Yang, yang2020.com. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far, you can support the show if you like what you've heard here by going to humanistreport.com slash support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash support. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can click join below the video to become a member and get access to all of our content or at least most of our content, I should say, before it goes live on YouTube. But with that being said, that's it. That's all I've got for you guys. So my name is Mike Figueredo. This has been the Humanist Report podcast. I will see you all next week. Take care.